Blade Runner 2049 was the sequel that no one thought possible. But Denis Villeneuve proved the critics wrong and made one of the best science fiction films of the century. Villeneuve gave us one of the best legacy sequels ever. Let's break down Blade Runner 2049. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And today we are breaking down one of the greatest science fiction films of the century, Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049, the impossible sequel that nobody thought was possible. Incredible directors passed on this project. Christopher Nolan famously said, I don't trust myself doing this. I don't want to ruin it because he's such a big fan of the original Blade Runner. But somehow... Denis, with his genius ingenuity and understanding and truly loving the original Blade Runner, crafted a new iteration of the franchise for the modern age. And it kind of followed the suit of the of the original film that was uh, not very successful at the box office, didn't really make that much of a landing, but it became a cult favorite and then a highly respected film by audiences all over the world. And Blade Runner 2049 has done the exact same thing, kind of lukewarm box office, but now it's one of the most revered films of the past decade. And I mean, Ridley Scott had an insane three-year run. He did Alien in 1979, and then in 1982, he did Blade Runner. I think people forget about that run. I mean, he's been on an insane career run. He's an all-time director. But even Ridley Scott ended up not directing Blade Runner 2049. He was gonna, he was attached to direct it back all the way in 2011. They were been developing the idea and the concept and the potential of a sequel for over a decade. And obviously they tried to back in the 90s. However, he had turned it down eventually and opted to make Alien Covenant the sequel to Prometheus, which is something that he regrets doing by not doing Blade Runner 2049 himself. However, he did remain on as executive producer of the project and had quite a bit of say and control and creative decisions for the script and story. So he was involved in the script and the way it played out. But Blade Runner 2049, one of my favorite sci-fi films of this century, of all time. When it comes to legacy sequels, we've really only seen a couple that have been really successful, not just at the box office. This wasn't very successful, but great films at the same time. I mean, Top Gun Maverick, the most recent example of a terrific legacy sequel. Oh, yeah. Before that, though... Blade Runner 2049 was the ultimate legacy sequel. They're pretty much the only ones. Yeah, and by legacy sequel, I mean a sequel that took 30, 40 years to make. So I think that Blade Runner 2049 is a special sequel. And you mentioned uh, Ridley Scott being involved heavily in the in the writing. I think an important reason why this film worked, it doesn't really get spoken about, is because Hampton Fancher, the original writer of Blade Runner, actually was the co-writer of this script. So it was, seemed to be very important to have the same writer, and he actually came up with the idea of, you know what, let's have the lead be an actual replicant. That's a fun twist on it. So if they had hired, you know, hotshot writers or up-and-coming writers in Hollywood, it doesn't seem like it would have worked. So I think getting Hampton Fancher, the original writer of the masterpiece of Blade Runner, was one of the most vital instrumental parts of this movie working. And then, obviously, hiring Denis who had the, in Ridley Scott, he would have made a great film. And I'm, I am curious about what he would have done with Blade Runner 2049. That being said, I'm not sure it could have topped what Denis did because Denis brought his new voice and his new artistry into the Blade Runner world. And also Ridley's track record with the legacy sequels for his own IP, Alien. Prometheus is good. 
Alien Covenant's pretty good, but they're not even close to Alien. Whereas Denis made a movie that is pretty close to Blade Runner. That's an interesting point. I would still would have loved to have seen what Ridley had done because you know he's Ridley. Blade Runner. Yeah, he's Ridley Scott. He's one of my favorite directors ever, and he's such a creative genius and so important to cinema. And also, David Peoples was one of the original screenwriters for the original Blade Runner from 1982. But Hampton Fancher wrote 2049 with Michael Green. Now, on IMDb, Blade Runner 2049 is an 8.0 with over 620,000 ratings. Rotten Tomatoes is an 88% critic score, 87% audience score. Letterboxd, it's a 4.1. Its runtime is 2 hours and 43 minutes, which I think is a little bit much for this movie. I adore it, but for most audiences, it's not highly digestible for a science fiction film with these intense themes for that length, in my opinion. I would say, yeah, any criticisms I see of the film, it's the, it's the runtime. It is. The budget was $150 million. Its box office was an okay $267 million globally. I'm sure it's become profitable since then. It might have maybe... No, it probably didn't make profit no. when it came out. That's obviously. not even including marketing on the budget, so it needed to make 400 Yeah, so it probably has become profitable since because of VOD releases in sales. It's just been such a popular film for film people. And rentals must be super high for yeah. it. Yeah, so it's probably become profitable, but it took a little while. Academy Awards, it got five nominations with two wins. It won Best Cinematography for The Goat, Roger Deakins, as well as Best Visual Effects, obviously directed by Denis Villeneuve. And yes, that's how you pronounce his name. We get a lot of questions about that. When People on, on TikTok are always like, never heard it pronounced that way before. Yeah, it's kind of funny. <laughs> oh, you mean the right way? Yeah. The way he says? I mean, we, we used to say it wrong. Yeah, I will everyone, it's, a, it's an odd name. We're not French. Yeah, we're not French at all. <laughs> at all. Uh, music was done by Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish. However, a quick fact, the original composer was Johan Johansson who was a frequent collaborator with Denis before his passing. We'll get into that in a little bit. Now, a quick synopsis of Blade Runner 2049. 30 years after the events of Blade Runner, a new Blade Runner, LAPD Officer K, played by Ryan Gosling, unearths a long-buried secret that has the potential to plunge what's left of society into chaos. K's discovery leads him on a quest to find Rick Deckard, a former LAPD Blade Runner, who has been missing for 30 years. I really adore this film. Now, obviously, the talent involved is incredible. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Roger Deakins, he's such an incredible cinematographer because of how he's been able to evolve with technology. And there are some DPs that still stick with film and don't want to use digital. And then there are some D DPs that go with the times. And what's interesting with Roger Deakins is his cinematography, in a way, it feels the same, especially if you look at films like Prisoners and Sicario, same tendencies. But what was really great with Blade Runner 2049 and also with Skyfall was to see him on a huge scale, on a huge budget. Skyfall, he really got to play around with big sets and gigantic lighting. And then with Blade Runner 2049, we got to see what his artistry is like in science fiction, where anything's possible. 
where the more creative you are, the more interesting you are, it seems to suit whatever science fiction film you're doing if you want to make a visually stunning one. And it was just such a sight to behold what Deakins brought to this genre. It was the first time he had done sci-fi. And it seemed to be a match made in heaven in a lot of ways. And I hope he does more sci-fi in the future, depending on what his frequent collaborators like to do. But I think this is just a really incredible film. And then Denis Villeneuve, he's probably right now the most talented and most interesting franchise filmmaker since Christopher Nolan. Christopher Nolan brought so much incredible... Do you mean franchise or blockbuster? Franchise. So, well, he's only done one, one franchise. Blade Runner and Dune. No, I mean, but he's done one, one, I would say, like... Well, it's part of, they're part of franchises. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, they're, they're franchises. It's, it's the sequel of, uh... Yeah. So, they're both extremely talented, creative, artistic directors that bring uh, great um, resonance to their filmmaking. Denis has kind of taken over the mantle of franchise filmmaking, and they wanted to make this into a, a franchise. They set this up for a sequel, it just didn't work out. Were, the third film was planned to be the rebellion of the replicants. And that's set up throughout the course of this film, especially in the third act. So unfortunately, they'll never make that film, but it could have been incredible. And what he's brought to Dune, again, this high-level artistry that you don't often see in franchise films. And I hope that he makes a third Dune too, because it would, great to see, it would be great to see a Dune trilogy in the next several years to see that completed, because he never got to complete his Blade Runner plans. So right now, in the era of blockbuster franchise filmmaking, Denis is probably, in my opinion, the most talented doing it at that high of a level. And the creativity and the aesthetic of what he's done with those two movies, with Dune and Blade Runner 2049, is really incredible. I mean, watching Blade Runner 2049 the other night for maybe my fifth or sixth time, I was just constantly being reminded of the visuals that they created for dune and obviously for what we'll see for dune part two it's really interesting because, you made some great correlations yeah yeah so it's really interesting because he has worked with a handful of really great and talented cinematographers obviously he's worked with deacons multiple times with blair in 2049 sicario he worked with bradford young for arrival and then obviously with greg fraser for dune then dune part two now his usual production designer is patrice vermette He's done Dune, he did Arrival, he's done several of his films. However, Patrice did not do Blade Runner 2049. It was De Dennis Gasner, another production designer. But it's interesting how you're talking about his blockbuster franchise films, how they look so similar in a lot of different aspects, whether it's kind of like the ships you can compare, like those little rob robotic lenses and eyes that Neander Wallace uses when he kind of taps into, I'm guessing it's some sort of technology he uses to be able to see visually because he's blind these little ships that are kind of floating around. You look at those, and they move and look like the ships from Dune. Kind of these... And same thing with Arrival, the ships from Arrival, these spherical, the large, eggs. floating... Yeah, sort of egg-like in yeah, a lot of ways. He loves way. egg. A lot of ways. Egg metaphors. Fertility is yeah. a main metaphor for Blade Runner and obviously for Dune as well. So we'll talk about that as well. And I, I think the aesthetic is so similar. I mean, when we get to Neander Wallace's building, just to go on the comparisons to Dune real quick, obviously everyone's like, oh, James is talking about Dune again. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's becoming a Dune episode. But there's so many sequences in Blade Runner that just remind you of the aesthetic of Dune, like at Neander Wallace's corporation's head, Los Angeles headquarters, specifically the sequence with that file clerk. He looks like a Harkonnen. He looks like, this sequence looks like it could be on a Hairless, yeah. Minus the water, the orange, the, the architecture. It's so similar, and I love how he's crafted his own kind of style. And lots of stone. Yes, but to the style he's created, it 
overlaps with different collaborators or overlaps with different production designers, overlaps with different cinematographers. But that just shows the creative genius and aesthetic auteur that Denis is with these huge films. Where you watch a different movie in a different franchise and you're like, it's still the same director. And even though it's a different production designer, different uh, art de- department yeah. and different cinematographer. And you also showed me a few images where, you know, the opening of the Blade Runner eye, it it's just, it mirrors the the shot of Shai-Halud. the, the Shahalud of the sandworm. It looks, it, the sandworm's face looks like an eye. It the, does. Not sandworm's mouth, So the I mean. teeth of, of the, the sandworm, yeah. it creates the kind of like an iris in the center of the mouth, but also the close-up of the eye, the opening shot of Blade Runner is a reference yes. to Blade Runner in 1982. Although Ridley did it better with the, the fire explosion. It looks pretty gorgeous. It seems, honestly, that's one of the best shots of all time is Ridley's opening shot of the of Blade Runner. Yeah, and I think the main difference between his opening shot with Blade Runner with the explosion and reflections in the eye versus Denise, I think with Denise, he chose just almost a, an eye of perfection to show that this artificial eye is so perfect, it's more human than human, as L. Ron Tyrell would say. And also, like the Blade Runner 2049 has a more sterile feeling to it in in terms of special not the city landscapes but out of the other aspects to it so Blade Runner was defined by its grittiness by its griminess and its lo-fi punk rock kind of look to it and Denis went in a different route although you do see those aspects to the downtown area of LA a lot of the film has a more sterile look and feeling to it than the original Blade Runner and also you pointed out that um, Paul Trady's reaching into the box by the Reverend Mother that, that she holds out from that what's inside pain it's in the box it's a visual mirror of K reaching his hand into the beehive what do you call that not beehive but you know what I mean yeah, yeah, yeah. and then what was the third one the third one the, was the, the shot insect. of the insect on yeah. the hand so insect on so there's a bee on K's hand in Las Vegas and then there's a beetle on, is it Paul's it's hand? Paul's hand, Paul's yeah. hand in the desert. I believe, or is it Leto's? might be, it Someone. might have been Leto's. Someone. One of them. Doesn't yeah, matter. one of their hands. It's the shot, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a very, they mirror each other. There are a lot of other shots, too, that yeah, kind I'm of sure. copies I, I can, of each other. I can only imagine, for sure. And the way that Denis got this job was Blade Runner 2049 was financed through partnership with Alcon Entertainment and Sony Pictures, and it was distributed by Warner Brothers on behalf of Alcon. Now, Alcon... Also worked with the Neville Nov on Prisoners. So obviously when they were looking for a really talented director to make this massive sci-fi epic, Denis was massively in the running after Ridley Scott dropped out. So that's how he's worked with Alcon before and got this job basically after Ridley Scott dropped out. I read that in talks with the studio execs and producers, he just floated the idea that they would ask him what he's interested in doing for the future. And I read that he he just would throw out there, you know, if if Blade Runner's ever gonna happen, I would want to be able to do that. He, said, he did the same thing with Dune. Yeah, <laughs> he just floated it out there. It was like an inter- he was in an interview in like 2017. He was in post production on Blade Runner 2049, being interviewed, and someone brought up Dune. And he's like, yeah, I mean, I would love to do a Dune movie. That's basically how Warner Brothers got wind of oh. Denis would love to do a Dune movie. Blade Runner 2049 is going to be incredible, and it looks incredible. Now, the aesthetic that he created with Deacons and Dennis Gosner for Blade Runner 2049 is exceptional. This is obviously the third film that he did with Deacons. Prisoners and Sicario were the other two. Now, with production designer Dennis Gosner and Deacons and Villeneuve, the men brainstormed ideas for the visual palette of the film with 
while Denis was editing his science fiction film Arrival in 2016. The sequences were then storyboarded and left for Deacons and Villeneuve to execute. The two were inspired by the architecture of several global cities to develop a hostile, imposing, brutalist style for the fictionalized Los Angeles, among them the appearance of Beijing cityscape in dense smog, the foothills of southern Spain, Bangladeshi shipyards, and certain mid-20th century landmarks in London such as Barbican Estate and Trellick Tower. For Las Vegas set sequences, the filmmakers researched intense dust storms in the Sahara, Saudi Arabia, and Sydney to replicate the sandy desert ruins Villeneuve sought. Well, Roger Deakins, we've said before in our Dune episode, he and Prisoners, he works with Denis on pre-production and concept art. That's very rare. Cinematographers very rarely work with the director in the pre-production conceptualization phase, but Denis understands the genius of Roger Deakins and like, let me help you, let me get you involved in, from, <laughs> from the ground up. I mean, it's pretty smart. Let's design the movie together because you're such a brilliant film filmmaker. And one of the most memorable parts visually of the film obviously is the orange dust of Las Vegas. It's an iconic, it's iconic imagery for the film. It's a visual reference for the film for many people. Lots of film bros have it as their screensaver. Exactly. <laughs> so Deacons actually brought that to the film through the design. He came up with the idea that actually a similar thing happened in Australia, in Sydney, in 2000, in the 2000s. And Roger Deakins... Well, there's a wildfire, right? Yeah, there's a wildfire. And fire. it created that exact same kind of dust cloud over the city with the orange hue enveloping everything. And Roger Deakins had that idea. He's like, what if we brought that into the film and made that Las Vegas? We can capture what happened in Sydney because I believe he was there and he just it made a big impression on him. And that's an example of what Roger Deakins is bringing to the film and why he's why Denis asks him to help him from the get go, as opposed to working with storyboard artists on his own in a production team on his own and then being like, okay, this is our plan. Let's design shots for it. He's like, let's design the plan together and then design shots for it. And much of the film was shot in Hungary for interiors and exteriors. Interior shots of the Budapest Stock Exchange Library Square Palace doubled for Las Vegas in casino set sequences and then an abandoned Soviet industrial site such as the abandoned Enoda and Kellenfold power plants were important filming locations that emphasized Blade Runner 2049's dystopian ethos. So obviously all those sequences in like San Diego, the municipal yeah. uh, machinery, those mines areas where the orphanages that were shot in Hungary at real locations. It, because you want to make it feel like it's another world, even though it's your backyard. It, it, especially us living in LA, you know, San Diego's the backyard. But, and it's usually, it's we think of it as like a quiet retirement place, lots of beaches, lots of greenery, but in this world, it's a trash dump. And so I think that using a city like San Diego for that purpose is really strong, really great filmmaking because the novel is really interesting. The world is has become almost unlivable. And so most people, if you can afford it, live off planet. And then the poor, poverty stricken, and the destitute live on earth still. So most people, if they have the money, they can live off world and so everybody that's still on this planet is just who's left yeah let's talk about the world for a little bit now so 2049 30 years after the events of blade runner from when it came out in 1982 oh my god so old. And, and so los angeles i think they just expanded on what 
the world this dystopian future looks like in terms of the scope because we obviously after Kay does the sapper's tree sequence in the opening act of the film and he flies back to Los Angeles we see incredible sequences and imagery of just endless miles and an ocean of these skyscraper slum apartments which you can only imagine how many people are living in Los Angeles now, maybe 50 million, 100 million people living in this city. San Diego is a wasteland. It was hit by nuclear holocaust. There's been nuclear fallout all over the world. Climate change has made much of the earth uninhabitable. That's why Los Angeles is constantly has this smog, which it already does, but it's so much worse in this movie. You can but barely also, see through it. can barely see the sky. There's no sunlight, really. Not to mention that there's even more cement and artificiality, metal, plastic. It's everywhere. There's no more organics. To have a piece of wood, like when Kay has that little horse, and he goes to that, that dealer, the man says, you're a rich man. Like, I can get you a real horse. That's how valuable just an organic property is because nature has been replaced. It's snowing in Los Angeles, which means that the climate is so unpredictable. Weather patterns are so odd. San Diego is legitimately just a trash dump. That's all it is now. It's in ruins. And also in the in the world of the world of the novel, we see in both films, it's very rare to have a real animal. Most yeah. most animals are um, like replicants. They're biologic. They're designed and artificially made. And so it's an extreme rarity to have an actual living animal. And that's why Kay asks Deckard, "Is it real?" And about the dog, and Decker goes, I don't know, ask him. <laughs> because it's, most of the time, if you have an animal, 99.9% of the time, it's a fake animal. Because they're almost all completely extinct. Almost all animals are extinct on Earth, just like humans are kind of going out extinct compare, compared to Blade Runners. And there's been massive economic and social collapse. Green farmlands, farmlands, they're now metal and plastic. That opening sequence of K flying over the farmlands, they're solar lands, they're solar farmlands, they're protein farmlands. Everything that was green or lush or colorful is now gray, silver, black. Everything that was organic has now been replaced by artificial ingredients, artificial components, metal, plastics, even the food, you can guess, is completely artificial, farm-grown like these like these insects. Yeah, that's an incredible opening. The opening sequence of the sky sky views of the landscapes of, Los, of California where you fly on an airplane. I think Denis wanted to correlate this where when you fly on an airplane and you fly over farmland, it's like all these – it's like a puzzle of greenery. If you've flown over the United States, yeah. it's incredible to it's, see. It's beautiful. It's just these these puzzle pieces of farms, of, of green farms, just like interlocked together. And it's just really incredible. To interlinked. See, interlinked. Interlinked. <laughs> it's really incredible to see, you know, you can see the outline of every lot of land and the shapes of them. It's really cool. But Denis was like, I want to do that, but it's all white and gray because it's all... They're all in interiors now, and there's no more greenery at all. It's just gray, plastic, and concrete, and metal, like you said. So I thought that was a genius way to open the film of something that we're familiar with, and it's a very simple way of showing how the world has completely changed from nature to artificial. And I want to talk more about the world and the characters, but I want to go back to some production stuff and talk about the music. Go back to whatever you want, man. So Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish made the music for Blade Runner 2049. However, Johan Johansson was the original composer and left mid-production. So he pre previously collaborated with Denis on films like Prisoners, Sicario, and Arrival. And he's an incredible, he was an incredible musician. He passed away, what, like three or four years ago. Now, this was like a natural fit to like, oh, let me bring my guy in. He's done so many of my movies. He's incredible. 
And so he came in then in July 2017. It was reported that Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wallfish would take over as the film's primary composers, with, with Johansson now serving as a supporting role. Later that same year, in August 2017, it was reported that all of Johansson's contributions to the score had been removed. And when reached out for comment by online publication Pitchfork, a representative for Johansson said, unfortunately, due to a legal non-disclosure agreement, Johan signed, we're not able, Johan signed, we're not able to speak about this film at all. Can you look up the, the release date for Blade Runner 2049? 2017. Quick? I mean, no, the release date, the month. Oh, the month. The release gotcha. date. Um, for 2049 while I continue. When asked about it a month later in September 2017, by Al Arabia English, Denis Villeneuve would say, the thing I will say is that making movies is a laboratory. It's an artistic process. You cannot plan things. Johan Johansson is one of my favorite composers alive. He's a very strong artist, but the movie needed something different, and I needed to go back to something closer to Vangelis from the original film in Blade Runner 20, from 1982. October 6th. So this movie came out in October 2017, and Johan was replaced in July 2017, which so they had to finish it in three months, basically. Yeah. And now... Then Johan and I decided that we needed to go in another direction. So why did Hans and Wallfish come in and how they come in? So Hans was about to embark on his first ever live tour when he was asked to work on the score for Blade Runner 2049. He got a call from his friend, Joe Walker, who's an editor, who says they're a little stuck and that Denis could, would love for him to come over and have a chat. And Hans was like, no, I'm going on a live <laughs> tour. I can't be doing a movie right now. He was eventually coaxed into coming to be a part of 2049 when Villeneuve suggested they also bring in British composer Benjamin Wallfish, who did A Cure for Wellness. It's a frequent collaborator of Zimmer's. And then Hans was like, okay, let's do this. Also a huge fan of Blade Runner. Now with Johan, it's rumored that his EP called Gold Dust is the music that he made for Blade Runner 2049 that was never released. So a lot of people have actually taken tracks from this EP called Gold Dust. I highly recommend checking it out. It's terrific. And they've matched up with scenes, specifically the the water fight sequence in the end in different moments, wave sequence, and it matches up with so many beats of action or so many beats of dialogue. Did he title that track Waves? No, he doesn't. No. He titled them just different things, uh -huh. but the EP is called Gold Dust. But no, that's like the wave sequence at the end yeah, yeah. of the fight. That's the kind of what people call it online. And people have assumed and kind of made the perception that his EP Gold Dust was the music he made for Blade Runner 2049. Uh, when you listen to it, was it more medita meditative and um, slower in terms of, in smaller? Like I wouldn't say it's smaller. It's just different than uh, what obviously what Hans and Wallfish came up with, but it works. But at the same time, it didn't completely feel like in the world of Blade Runner. Sometimes, yeah. yes. And I believe one of the main themes that he came up with, they still used in the movie. But when you listen to it, you're like, wow, this actually could definitely fit in the landscape of this movie for 2049. But yeah. I kind of agree with Villeneuve that it didn't completely feel like the world of Blade Runner with the music. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, the reason why Wallfish was involved was, like you say, Hans was on tour. So Hans was working remotely, and Wallfish was working in their studio at... Um, what's what's Hans' studio called? I can't remember his, his production company. His I company. am the GOAT. <laughs> <laughs> he has a uh, big company, and he is the producer of all of his scores through this company, and he produces a lot of other scores from composers that have come up the ranks of his company. Uh, so Wallfish... Remote Control Productions. Remote, con remote Control, thank you. So ha Wallfish was working in studio, and Hans was working remotely while on tour and traveling. And Benjamin Wallfish 
is a wonderful composer. He's one of my favorite newer composers of the last 10 years or so. He's done a really great job with horror. It, one and two, are incredible scores. And then A Cure for Wellness is really fantastic. Uh, so Gore Verbinski, he couldn't get Hans for that. And so I think Hans recommended Wallfish for A Cure for Wellness because Verbinski and Hans worked together on the Pirates movies. Uh, so they had a great relationship. So Benjamin Wallfish was a wonderful addition. And they did bring that DNA, the Vangelis DNA, into this film while adding so much more to it. There's a lot of heart to it, especially with the beautiful uh, joy themes and the beautiful K themes. The, there's some nice piano and some great some mod modest synths in it. But then it gets insanely big. The synth work is amazing. And there's this theme that, well, first of all, there's the big drums. And it's not a typical Hans Zimmer drum. It's just you'll hear like, dun -dun, like one or two drums laced apart. And they'll be like, Versus, doo, doo, yeah, doo, 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 he spaces doo, them out really, <laughs> really uh, late, like a long, lots of beats. Yeah, lots of beats in between. So he takes his time with the percussion. But there's this amazing theme. It sounds like a motorcycle engine that you hear throughout the film, especially in L.A., uh, especially in the downtown area. It's like the theme of L.A., I would say. And it sounds like the revving of a motorcycle engine. It's incredible. Now... That's one of I think is I think that's the most interesting sound that they came up with, but the origins origins of that sound is really interesting. So originally they recorded it as choir work, and they were gonna they were planning to do this choir of singing through the sequences, but Villeneuve didn't like it. So he Villeneuve told Hans and Walfish make it more punky, make it more gritty, make it more punk rock, cyberpunk, city. cyberpunk, and so. They added enough filters to the choir work that they completely transformed it into this like gritty engine sound. So, so they actually used the choir music that they recorded yes. and just transformed it. So they turned the choir singing into that like revving engine sound. Yeah, I think Hans has brought so much with what you can do with electronic filters to instruments. And it's so fascinating. I mean, I feel like the is like really an interesting sound. It sounds like maybe a brass, like a French horn that he just has so many effects on to give it a really eerie science fiction feel. It's similar to how on I saw this great interview where Denis and Hans were promoting Dune and they were talking about the music. And they were talking about the theme for House of Trades with the bagpipes. And, sure. and Denis was like, I really wanted bagpipes in this in this movie. That's like the theme I was picturing for this family, for this house. And Hans was like, yeah, so by the way, those weren't bagpipes. And Denis was like, what do you mean it wasn't bagpipes? He's like, those weren't bagpipes. That was a guitar that we made sound like bagpipes. And he's like, wait, you're telling me this now? <laughs> yeah, I saw the interview. He's like, wait, you didn't use bagpipes for the bagpipe sound? It just shows how talented Hans, Zim, Hans Zimmer is and creative he is with being able to make all kinds of interesting sounds out of different instruments. What's cool about the way he works is that Hans actually, when he makes a score, he he writes it all on his piano, his uh, synth piano, and so he'll make like a. The, it's the I bet some so many musicians are like synth piano. The <laughs> I don't called. know, <laughs> whatever it is. He, he has call the keyboard. Yeah, keyboard. Thank you. But he's got it all synthed out or whatever, whatever, <laughs> with effects and shit. It sounds it doesn't sound like a piano, but so that's so he write that's like the bass. He'll write it. He'll write the score like that, and then he'll he'll use that and draw all the sounds out of that. So he always starts with this like rudimentary uh, keyboard track of the score, and then he builds off of that. But what's interesting is for Ron Howard's third film in the Da Vinci Code franchise, he, he liked it so much that he was like, let's just use what you did. We don't even need to get an orchestra. Let's just do what you did in the keyboard. 
And so that's an example of a score that Hans pretty much did just with keyboards and computer uh, and his computer. Synthesizer. Synthesizer. Well, and his computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's, it's in, that's like the, how he starts and he builds off of that. But then Benjamin Wallfish, he's, he was heavily involved in this score. We've spoken to a couple people who are composers and they said that he had a lot to do with this score. So he deserves credit as well. And that's why he's co-credited. And again, Johan Johansson, check out that EP that I was telling you about and listen to it. And you'll be like, this totally fits in Blade Runner 2049. It's called Gold Dust. It's really awesome if you're a fan of his. Now, the casting for Blade Runner 2049 was so key to this movie working. How do you cast someone? Obviously, we know Harrison Ford's going to come back. All the rumors are like, is he going to be in it? Oh, we don't know yet. By the way, he's fantastic in this movie. Terrific in this yeah. movie. He's great. But how do you find someone who's kind of the contemporary version of Harrison Ford? And Ryan Gosling was the number one choice from the get-go. That's the guy they wanted. It's who Villeneuve wanted. It's who Harrison wanted. It's who the producers wanted. They actually wrote the script of the character of Kay Taylor to Gosling before he even got the job. He was hesitant at first because this was actually his first blockbuster movie. Gosling had never led a blockbuster film before until Blade Runner 2049. This movie changed his entire career because he's in so many blockbuster movies now and or huge films. It's he really- got the big paycheck. He's <laughs> like, I like this. He's like, I like this money. But this movie, I think this was important for Gosling for it made him cool. It made him a he was a after cool guy. Drive. Okay, Drive. Okay, Drive was cool as hell. Drive made him cool. This made him a superstar. Yeah, this made him a star because so many people who the film people who love Blade Runner. They're like, okay, who's this Ryan Gosling guy? I like Drive a lot. He's in a bunch of cool, really interesting movies. Lars and the Real Girls, a really interesting movie. Eyes of March is great. <laughs> who's this Ryan Gosling guy? Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's this Who guy? Who is this guy? Ryan but, what? But Blade Runner 2049 was a huge step for his career be- to bring him where he is now. And he also obviously wanted to work with Villeneuve. He wanted to work with Roger Deakins. And I'm sure he was a fan of Blade Runner. But I think it was so important to get someone like him. And I think he's terrific in this movie as k k is a replicant he's a blade runner and i love how they let you know within five minutes of the movie that he is a blade runner it dispels any questions and and mysteries about the character like you have with deckard whether you believe he's a replicant or not from blade runner i think that it was smart to just he's a replicant we found this out he doesn't say it right away but you just tell within a few minutes the fight the the altercation between him and sapper eventually they start talking about uh, you hunt your own kind, obviously, but I think it was smart to, within five minutes of knowing the character, we know he's a Blade Runner. Uh, and, I mean, he's a replicant. I thought it was a really brilliant take on the script, too, because the trailer didn't tell that to the audience. It was very, yeah, it was hidden. We expected Gosling's character to be just another, uh, a human Blade Runner. Uh, and I thought it was a wonderful twist to show early on. And I think it was really the right move to take for the film because... Uh, the the Blade Runner movies tackle the main theme of what is humanity, what does it mean to be human, and to show this from the perspective of a replicant questioning, am I human? Am I not actually a, a machine? Am I more than that? Well, let's not talk about let's not call them machines. They're not machines. Okay, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Am I am I more than just an artificial artificially made thing? Do I have a soul? Those are the those themes are explored so brilliantly because we know from the get-go that he's a replicant. Whereas Blade Runner, the original, it's hinted at and then basically confirmed by the director's cut that Deckard is a replicant. And then it's even questioned more when Wallace is, is interrogating Deckard and saying, were you designed or were you not designed? So they're playing around with that idea and the, the audience's 
back and forth of, do you think Deckard was a replicant or do you think he was a human? Uh, Ridley Scott has come out to confirm that Deckard was a replicant, and that was always his intention. And really the main hint, the, the main source of evidence for that is uh, the unicorn in his dream and, and then the, what do you call it, origami, origami, the origami unicorn that his partner makes uh, and leaves on his table. Deckard picks up the little origami unicorn at the end of Blade Runner, gives it a little smile. That's basically a confirmation that he was also replicant in that in that dream of the unicorn is a, a placed memory that was put inside of his mind. And Neander Wallace hints that maybe you were designed to fall in love with her, to fall in love with Rachel. Maybe that was the whole plan. That was the Tyrell plan to create fertility and Rachel and Deckard were really the keys that they manipulated to to come together and they were meant to meet and they were meant to fall in love. They were designed that way. And I like how Wallace hints at that later in the third act of this film. And besides Deckard, Gaff is the other legacy character that comes back for a sequence. He's the one who does the origami, his old partner where they work together so they could both work alone because they both like to work on their own. And he does origami in this movie. He makes a sheep origami for Kay because his way of taunting replicants is making origami. Like Anthony said, in the first film in Blade Runner, Deckard has dreams of a unicorn. So Gaff makes a unicorn to taunt him. Like, I know that that's, your, that's not a real memory because I know what your dreams are. And he makes the sheep for Kay because basically saying, Kay, you're a sheep. All you do is follow orders. Until he starts to basically, you could say, malfunction in a lot of ways. Or it could be a reference to the original title of the novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? True. Well, speaking of androids and replicants, let's break down what exactly a replicant is. So Anthony said the word machine, but I corrected him because— I'm sorry to all the replicants out there. Because replicants are not machines. They are bioengineered humans composed entirely of organic material. And the word android is obviously used by Philip K. Dick in the original film. Do androids dream of sheep? He calls them Andes in the book. Android kind of insinuates that they're mechanically made for audiences today. I think that's what we're used to when you say android from all the science fiction we've had the last 50 years since that book came out or longer. But replicants are organic. They're they're biologically made. They're not robots. They live and breathe just like humans. They need air and oxygen. They eat. They drink. I mean, Case smokes cigarettes. He drinks alcohol. He consumes food and... That food he's consuming is that artificial food that I'm sure all the humans are eating these days. And Blade Runners, I mean, replicants also have advanced physical and mental abilities to humans. They're more human than human, which is what Tyrell said in the original film. K has higher functioning capabilities. He clearly has a photographic memory. He has almost a CPU level intelligence of storing information. And I like to see a visual contextualization of his consciousness that. Uh, Lieutenant Joshi's watching when he's off of his protocol, off his, what's it, what do they call it? Um, baseline? When he's off his baseline yeah. after his second test, she's looking kind of at like a, like a, he's looking at, she's looking at a screen of what looks like maybe his consciousness or his mind, which is really interesting. Now, what's interesting about replicants is even though on the surface they're human, they're completely biological and organic, the, the argument is that they have no souls because they've never been born. And Kay believes this because he himself wasn't born, and he is a Nexus 9. So back in 1982 in the original Blade Runner film, we have different kinds of replicants. Replicants, when they first were made, had four-year lifespans, which led to mutinies and revolts by replicants. And by then, Nexus 8 models were created to have open-ended lifespans. Now, this is Roy Batty from Blade Runner and his 
gang of replicants, his rebels. He was a Nexus 8 open-ended lifespan. And then Sapper, played by Dave I'm Bautista. I'm sorry, I got to correct you there. He had a four-year lifespan. Roy Batty? Roy, his his goal is to maintain, is to live longer. I thought he was a Nexus 8 model. No, no, no. Oh, let me double check. That, his whole motivation in his crew is to figure out a way for them to not die. And then at the end on the rooftop, he dies. Because he's running, yeah, yeah. He's Sorry, a he's, Nexus, a, he's a Nexus 6. He's a Nexus 6 with a 4 year that, you're right, yeah. That's their whole motivation. That's right. Yeah. Sorry about that. So Roy Batty's a, a, ne a Nexus 6. That's why he's dying at the end. Mm -hmm. Sapper is a Nexus 8 model designed to have open-ended lifespans. Dave Bautista in the opening. He's placed Sapper in and, 2049. And then Deckard and Rachel, obviously, were earliest versions of Nexus 8s. Exactly. And... K is a Nexus 9. Now, Nexus 9 is a new version of the replicants after Neander Wallace took over Tyrell Corporation and created new versions of replicants that now obey orders. He calls them more benefits to society, whereas the Nexus 8s and the previous models, they were revolting and rebelling. But the Nexus 9s, according to Neander Wallace, obey the commands of humans. Or do they? And, they, and apparently they can't lie. And they can't they can't empathize, and also they yeah that's they can't lie. My theory or keep secrets yeah, yeah or he thinks my theory is they might start like that at the base entry level when they're born, but the experience of living changes them. It changes K and it in love is a great example of of a replicant who is a Nexus Nine, and she clearly lies. She clearly has her own desires, and she. Disobeys Wallace's orders to keep secrets from him, and in a way, you can see how when Madam tells Love that Kay destroyed the baby, Love is furious because Madam's first decision was to to kill it, as opposed to uh, accepting great change. And the way that Sylvia Hoax performed that scene, who was I think is phenomenal in this movie. She seemed to be so upset that this evolution of humanity has been snipped out. And she it seemed like she wanted this revolution, this new evolution of replicants taking over. So she had she clearly has her own desires that Wallace had no intention of her ever of creating within herself. She feels superior to humans. Yeah. And Kay doesn't feel that at all, really, because he's been so obedient. But really it's the the thing with Kay. He well, so him and Love keep secrets like you're talking about. One of the biggest secrets that Love keeps from Neander Wallace is her tears, her crying. Because Neander's blind, he doesn't notice her crying every time he kills a replicant that he created a new version. She weeps, but he can't see that. That's a secret that she keeps from him. And obviously, Kay starts to keep secrets from Lieutenant Joshi, madam. Now, but the thing with Kay is. He's obedient until he starts to discover this secret about this replicant that gave birth and then this child that was born. This boy that he discovers there, a boy and a girl were born. The girl died, according to the data and research he's looking up. But there's this boy, and he believes over time, over the course of the film, these memories start igniting. He finds clues that are real from his memories, even though he knows they're planted memories, they feel real. And he basically starts to get confirmation of himself thinking that he's this he's this special boy he's this replicant born of a replicant when he finds that wooden horse as he goes forward and that date matches up he thinks he's the boy obviously spoilers we're gonna start 
getting into now. We're, we're 45 minutes into this episode. So <laughs> believe it or not, we're going to spoil Blade Runner. And, and that's he starts to get emotional responses. And when he discovers from the memory maker, that doctor, that this was a real memory, it wasn't implanted or created. It was implanted, but it was not created. It was lived. He starts to believe that it's him. He's starting to have emotional responses to his reality that I'm this special replicant. I'm sort of a chosen child. I, I'm the next stage in evolution for humanity, possibly. And obviously, it devastates him later on when he's with the rebels run by Faisa that Marriott brings him to. And when they save him from Las Vegas, that they all think they're that special boy, that special girl. They all think they're that child, but they're not. And it devastates him and causes him to do what she says is the most human thing you can do is dying for the right cause, which he eventually does. This this is fast-forwarding so much, but it all kind of connects to Kay's mental state and how his consciousness sort of changes so much based off the discoveries that he's making. I would argue that that desire deep down to be human was always within him, and it's in with all of them because because – he 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 believes he doesn't have a soul, but he's probably wrong about that. They they probably do have souls, uh, just because they weren't organically born, um, doesn't mean they aren't alive, and that's the main question. But it's it's the the idea that it could be him. If if you told a a replicant that they're real, would they want that to be true, and would they believe that, and would that open up everything for them? And that's what happens to Kay. It opens him up. To the idea of oh I am a being I do I am I have a soul I I was born I'm 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 alive I'm not I'm not a program I'm I'm a living being and so in a way believing that the evidence he's finding correlates directly to his implanted memories com- maybe confirming that he is this boy and that these memories are real the idea of him wanting to be human makes him human. And this all relates to Jared Leto's character, Neander Wallace, who is basically a god to the earth right now. He's basically created this world from his technology and his vision of the future when he took over Tyrell. So the the opening text of this movie is terrific. It gives all the explanation you, exposition you need. So this is the opening text of Blade Runner 2049. Replicants are bioengineered humans designed by Tyrell Corporation for use off-world. Their enhanced strength made them ideal slave labor. After a series of violent rebellions, their manufacture became prohibited and Tyrell Corp. went bankrupt. The collapse of ecosystems in the mid-2020s led to the rise of the industrialist Neander Wallace, whose mastery of synthetic farming averted famine. Wallace acquired the remains of Tyrell Corp. and created a new line of replicants who obey. Many older model replicants, Nexus 8s with open-ended lifespans, survived, they are hunted down and retired. Those who hunt them still hunt them down still go by the name Blade Runner. Now, Neander Wallace is a really interesting antagonist and character to this film. He's got this massive god, god complex where he creates life. And, you know, Deckard says that line to him, do you have a child? And he says, I have millions. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got this insane complex where he thinks himself as a god on this earth because of what he's done. You could say in a lot of ways he saved a lot of humanity in this planet, which is was almost uninhabitable, and many people couldn't survive yeah, without. Yeah, he created new cheap food yeah. that was able to feed everyone. And that gave him massive wealth, obviously, and influence over the world. So 
Neander Wallace sees himself as a god because of now creating life. And his main goal no longer is to just make replicants one by one, basically on a factory system. His main goal is to make them by the trillions. That's what he wants to do. He sees himself as a god to this new world of replicants born from replicants. He's trying to create fertility amongst the replicants. That's why he kills that replicant, that new version in front of love, that new model. He kills her by slicing her abdomen because he notices that she is not fertile. She can't give birth. So he kills that replicant who knows how many he's killed. So his goal is to create fertility, organic fertility amongst replicants so that replicants can spread and become numbered in the trillions and obviously inhabit the nine worlds that he's created. Yeah, I would have liked to see more Wallace in the film. I and agree. Maybe a couple. He's in two scenes, really. That's it. Two scenes. Well, three. Three. What's the so, third? So he's got that that sequence with love, right? The birth scene. The birth, and scene. then the Deckard scene. Deckard scene with Rachel, which is terrific. Yeah. You know that 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 was one of my fa- that's one of my favorite scenes for the movie. And then so we've got that. That's it's just two scenes. Oh my goodness, is it just two scenes? Uh, I mean, Tyrell doesn't have that many scenes in the original, but he does. He is in more of the original, and I found I find him to be extreme. Even though he's not really the the main antagonist of the original, he's a great character as well. And the scenes with with uh, Tyrell are great, especially when Roy goes to confront him uh, to kill him. That's it's one of my favorite scenes in all of Blade Runner uh, is that Roy killing Tyrell. Um, but Wallace is a really interesting character. What I find interesting is the design of his home of his of wallace corporation so first of all with the design of the cities it's as though these big institutions are they're like kind of like giant temples the lapd headquarters is fucking massive it's like a a huge church in the city and then wallace corporation is it's like a pyramid and it's like a, a, a a huge mythological temple in the city you know what it reminds me of 1984 yeah Definitely has Ministry of Truth, Ministry of Love. Roger Deacon shot it, (laughs) believe it or not. But what's really cool about the design of Wallace's headquarters is um, obviously there's stone in many of the areas where every where like everyday functions go. But Wallace's areas surrounded by wood and water. There's wood everywhere, and there's water everywhere. And like you said earlier, wood is extremely valuable. And then, but all these walls are made out of wood. And and then there's the the water with the light flickering on it. Beautiful design. Love his office with the reflections of the light on the surface of the water. And then, and then the interrogation sequence at the end of Wallace and Deckard with the beautiful water reflecting onto the walls. So there's a third scene. Love. In Wallace and on that platform. Yeah, that's what it is. So, third, yeah, so he has two scenes in yeah. that area. Yeah. It's interesting that in this future where nature is so non existent, he surrounds himself with a couple of the main um, elements of nature wo- with wood and then with water constantly. I found that really fascinating with the design of the film. Well, it's interesting. The wood aspect of it, you could compare it to if someone was so wealthy that they made their entire office made out of gold. It's actually been done by our former president. Exactly. His so, apartment was gold. Yeah. So that's, that's what's interesting about it. That's how much wealth Neander Wallace w- would have. It's like your entire walls are platinum or exactly. gold or yeah. diamonds. That's, that's how wealthy he is. Because the wood is, like you said, is so rare and valuable. Exactly. Now, 
Villeneuve considered David Bowie to be Neander Wallace. He was actually one of the franchise's core influences. However, he passed away before filming began. Instead, he and the producers looked at Jared Leto, fresh off of Suicide Squad in 2016, because they felt he exuded Bowie's rock star sensibility. Leto refrains from naming specific sources that shaped certain aspects of his character's persona. Rather, the actor cites real-life friends who work in tech as general influence, which is pretty He eerie. has, like, that nerdy computer programmer voice. Yeah, yeah. not I wouldn't a call bit. it nerdy. It's almost computer. Yeah. Like a computer artificial, voice. Artificial, yeah, like yeah, robotic voice. voice. Yeah, robotic yeah. artificial voice. Leto is notorious, obviously, in the film industry for his unorthodox preparations for roles. And he continued his unusual practices for Blade Runner 2049 by wearing custom opaque contact lenses to work the set completely blind. And he came into set. No one knew he was wearing these contacts until like day of filming. And even Villeneuve was like, it was pretty insane to see him walking around being courted around by assistants because he couldn't see a thing. He said he never saw Harrison Ford, even though he worked with him in a, a huge scene. <laughs> he never actually saw him. <laughs> so he, yeah, I he, feel like he made Harrison so uncomfortable. Like that sequence, the scene Harrison was, is not like that. Har actor. Yeah, Harrison <laughs> with, with, so it's Deckard and Neander before he brings Rachel out. Yeah up into the platform you can see like harrison's like this is weird and, like crazy like and uh neander grabs his hand and harrison tries to pull away but jared Leto pulls it back you can tell that that was improvised it actually adds so much to the sequence and I and think harrison going with it yeah, yeah obviously he's a professional but you can tell that a lot of that was probably improvised they're very different actors but what's interesting they they get pretty much the same result because harrison ford is uh he's really i, I think underappreciated for his talent he's a wonderful actor he just does a lot of big action movies and adventure movies, but he really is an incredible performer, and he destroys you in the scene at the in the third act. Like he is, he lets out so much vulnerability, so much emotion. Like for legacy sequels, this is my favorite performance of a character from a, a beloved franchise returning for a role. He's just phenomenal in this film. From right when when he shows up on screen in Las Vegas, man, he you can tell like he didn't just do it for the paycheck. Like he really cared about it. He and I read that he he thought the script was one of the best screenplays he's ever written. This this Blade Runner twenty forty nine script. So he was clearly extremely invested and passionate about the role, and he put everything into it. You can see that on screen. Yeah, I mean, Decker was a huge character for him, and I think I read that he needed for a reason to come back. He needed to see why the character needed to be shown again on screen and like why was he in exile what happened between him and rachel i think it's great and there's a main component to this world in this era that we have to talk about as well in this blackout which is mentioned several times in this film so in 2022 there was a massive blackout for 10 days where a massive digital shutdown happened of all like electronics on in i think just the los angeles area but maybe entirely on earth where everything got erased Every digital artifact, every digital document was gone. Now, it was believed to be done by the replicants. And I think it's pretty clear by the time you finish the film that this occurred because the replicants were trying to protect this child as she was, or as the child was born and then eventually hidden and eventually put into an orphanage. Oh, that's a good theory. There. So that's what I think. When that's I watched this film, I believe that the replicants did this to protect this child because what it did was it erased every digital footprint ever. 
and made everything go back to analog. The only thing that survived, like the file clerk says, was ironically paper. My poor mother still cries about the baby photos that she lost. Oh, you must have been adorable. <laughs> <laughs> so my, I believe that the replicants did this to protect Rachel and Deckard's child because obviously Faisa knows about it. This re- the secret rebellion of replicants know about this child. They know she exists. So what could they do pr- to protect her? is erase all digital footprints of anything, all the data out there. And then what were they, they were able to do, like Deckard says when he's talking to Kay in Las Vegas, I taught them how to cover their tracks. They were able to then, once everything got turned back online, create false data that there was obviously a boy and a girl, that the girl died, that there's a boy out there to even increase the puzzle and lead people on a false trail if they ever get wind of this child. And it's incredible and so ironic that Neander Wallace actually has a professional relationship with the child that he's searching for. So it's great. so ironic because Dr. Staline, we end up learning, is actually that this child, he is, she is Deckard and Rachel's child, and that's why she has the immune-compromised compromi- body. Um, it's just It was just a, a great twist and incredible dramatic irony that Wallace is so desperate to find this child and willing to do anything and he's putting so many resources behind it, and yet he has been working professionally with the child for years now. It's just incredible. It's pretty It's pretty great. Right under his nose, hidden in plain sight. <laughs> the best place to hide yeah. is in plain sight. Exactly. Now, how about we uh, take a break, run to our intermission, and we'll come back, and we'll continue discussing Blade Runner 2049. How's that sound? Let's do it. Now, before we continue, the best way to help Raiders of Lost podcast grow is to share us with your friends and family members who love movies. If they love cinema, if they love Blade Runner 2049, share this episode with them. It's the number one way for a podcast to grow is getting shared by their biggest and most loyal listeners out there. So please share the show and also leave those five-star ratings on Spotify and Apple. We're at 2,300 on Spotify, which is huge. Nice. And we're so close to 2,000 on Apple. We're at 1,800. Really want to break 2,000 by the end of the year, so... Anyone who has Apple, or if you don't have Apple, all you do is need an email and you can sign up for iTunes. Or if you have an iPhone, you have access to it. So we love those five star ratings. I'm going to leave, uh, I'm going to read a written review in just a minute from Apple. Now, you can also support the show financially by becoming a patron at patreon.com. This is a, a subscription based form of support. Every single patron has access to two bonus episodes of Raiders of the Lost podcast every single week. All you have to do is sign up for one of our tiers. We have tiers at $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. Every single tier, again, gets access to two bonus episodes as well as up the charts and up that tier list. You get awesome perks, which get better and better as you go up. Like $10 gets you access to our Discord. It's an incredible community. We have watch parties on there and chat with you all the time. $25, you get a custom episode. $100 is just the granddaddy chosen one tier where you get insane perks, free merch, private watch party, you get to come on the show. It's so much fun. Thank you to everyone who is a patron. You can become one today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at movieposters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at movieposters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They're also doing a free movie poster giveaway in this episode. So if you want to enter for a chance to win a free movie poster, all you have to do is head on over to our YouTube channel and make a comment in the Blade Runner 2049 episode that enters you into the contest to win a poster of your choosing from 
MoviePosters.com. Again, head on over to the YouTube channel, make a comment in the Blade Runner 2409 episode, and that enters you into a chance to win. We're going to pick a winner in one week, so good luck, everyone. And in the meantime, be sure to use MoviePosters.com for all of your poster needs with our promo code RAIDERS10. All right, let's head into our intermission, and we'll begin with the superlatives, which we're going to start doing superlatives. again. Superlatives. James can't say, still can't say superlatives. Superl- I'm from Boston, Superlatives. man. Superlatives. 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 Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> still, two years later, you can't still, you still can't. Superlatives. 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 You got it, man. Superlatives. You're not going to say it right next time. Superlatives. Okay, who is your MVP of Blade Runner 2049? Denis Villeneuve. I also put the knee. The goat. Yeah, he did a remarkable job. with the, When this film was announced, I was like, what the fuck? They're making a sequel to Blade Runner? How? Who? What? what? Why? Ridley's not doing it. How are they going to do this? And then they got the knee. I didn't want it. I yeah, didn't want a I didn't sequel. want it either. Then they got the knee announced, and then Gosling. And I was like, here's my money. Here's my money, Warner Brothers. Actually, I do want it. I want it now. <laughs> <laughs> More. <laughs> All right. Who is the best actor? In Blade Runner 2049. You know, <laughs> as... <laughs> what are you going to say? Like, part of me wants to say Jared Leto, but it's just because he's so little in the film. But that third scene he has with, with Rachel and Deckard as Neander Wallace is terrific. So, he's very good in that scene. I wish... If he was more in the movie, I would put him in there. But it's just too short of a role for me to say he's the best actor. Because I think he's terrific in this movie. But I got to go with Gosling. He did so much emoting without showing it and obviously with drive and a lot of his performances in previous films he just shows non so much nonverbal talent it was, it was literally me it's, it's, it's it literally me no it was literally me in drive <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about i mean about. i'm literally him so it's pretty crazy that he was able to capture me in film but um i think it's gosling he just brought so much to the role of k he's great however sylvia hoax as love is incredible she is in her short amount of screen time, a scene stealer. She does so much, and she made the character extremely interesting for the like henchman archetype. It's She's phenomenal. Every time I see this movie, I'm like, she fucking is acting her ass off and doing an amazing characterization of love. So I say Sylvia Hoax as love is the standout of this film. Good pick. Who, I mean, what is the best shot? Where are your favorite shots? It's, it's like so hard to pick one from this you gotta movie. Gotta pick one, man. Here goes I, James with 16 lists. <laughs> <laughs> Give me one answer. Just I had. One. I don't want a group. I, I don't want a list. I want one. I had an answer. I have an answer. I don't want to give it to you, though, because you're being such a jerk right now. <laughs> you know you give several answers when I ask for one. I don't give several. I give a few. <laughs> like three or four. That's not several. Just give me one. It's the Las Vegas silhouette orange smoke shot of, of Kay walking through. From the, behind? Yeah, from behind. Mm-hmm. Great pick. My favorite There's shot. my wallpaper on my phone for like a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My favorite shot is actually one that never gets talked about because I think it's really impressive visual effects and so meaningful. It's the shot of when Joy hires uh, the other replicant, Mariette, Mariette to, to give the feeling of them having intimacy physically that's a very funny way to say sex <laughs> you can say sex Anthony. I know I know sorry for them to have emotional and intimate physical intercourse to the extent of potentially having a child <laughs> and 
basically, Joy has to sync up with Mariette uh, visually so that Kay sees Joy when he looks at Mariette. And it's beautiful. That whole sequence is really outstanding, visual effects and cinematography-wise. But my favorite shot is uh, they get a shot from behind Kay from the back of his neck, and you see both sets of hands grabbing the back of his neck, and you see 20 fingers. I mean, 40 fingers. It's, I mean, 20 fingers. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like counting the fingers on my hand. How many fingers do I have? <laughs> Are there toes up there too? <laughs> They're like dangling on his neck. With the hands it's quite feet. a Tarantino directed movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a spider around his neck. <laughs> or like those monkeys with the Velcro hands that they sold at the aquarium. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those monkeys were very popular. But you hit, you hit uh, 20 fingers wrapped around the back of his neck and I find that to be just an incredible image it's it's one that always sticks with me and you know it's not one of the popular ones that everybody else says. I'm sorry I'm still thinking of, of, of 40 fingers <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying not to laugh I'm trying not to try to say something serious and insightful okay <laughs> all right continue but I think it's a really incredible it's image. a really good choice yeah. I like that all right what's the best costume uh, wardrobe outfit in the film. Kay's jacket. Okay, yeah, Kay's, Kay's coat. Jack- I think. It's yeah. the best coat I've seen in years. It's cool. Gosling has played two characters with iconic jackets. They tried to make a third, but the gray man did not work out because that movie's not that great. Not great. It's not great. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously the scorpion jacket in Drive, iconic. But his jacket in Blade Runner, it's so cool. I want it so bad. You can buy it. It's just like 400 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a great coat. I would wear the shit out of that. Yeah. It's great. And it's comparable to Deckard in the first film. He's got a great jacket in that. It fits the time, and I'm sure it still holds up to being very cool for, like, the 80s and everything. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's his jacket, man. All right, what's the best scene in the film? The best scene in the film? Whew, from Blade Runner 2049. You know, I always go back to Sapper's... I really love the opening of this movie of, yeah, the of him getting to Sapper's and the, the conversation between him and Sapper. I think there's so much context in that scene with the dialogue as well as the, the physical fight is terrific. But I, I think it's a really great opening to the movie because how do you open a Blade Runner sequel? And I think that I really love the opening scene with him and Dave Bautista with Gosling. Yeah, funny you say that. It was actually drawn from the original opening scene of Blade Runner. It was going to be Deckard visiting a replicant on a farm and then taking in, killing that rec- replicant. So That was going to be his intro? That was the, the versus, original. Versus noodles? Yeah. That was the original opening of Blade Runner. I like that. I, I, I like the noodles scene, though, too. Two noodles. Two. My favorite scene is when Kay visits Dr. Stalin in the memory, uh, mem- memory uh, creation facility. It's extremely emotional. Um, that actress did a wonderful job. Uh, but it's such an important part to the story and to Kay. And it's visually stunning with the memory creation. Those sequences and that cinematography, uh, the visual effects and lighting are phenomenal. When she's doing like the birthday cake with candles, when it opens in the forest and then the door opens, you're like, wait, what the fuck? And it's that, then we see where it's all hologram. Um, it's just incredible. And... It's something I've never seen before in a science fiction film. I thought it was a brilliant, brilliant sequence. And it's an understated scene, but it's still extremely vital to the plot and to Kay's evolution as a character. So I, I love the mystery that. as well. Yeah, I love that scene. You know, when she starts crying and watching the memory, 
at first you're like, is she crying because it's sad or is she crying because she lived it? Yeah, they're both, both those actors are incredible in that sequence. All right, what's the best line in the movie? I think the best line might be the most human thing you can do is die for the right cause, which is very meaningful to eventually Kay abandoning the mission that the replicant set for him to kill Deckard to then save Deckard and reunite him with her, his daughter. It's the most human thing you can do. And for him, I think he does it because he wants to be human so bad. And for him, that's a way for him to kind of be a human and, and have a soul is to do something beautiful for somebody else. And it's the and dying for that cause and risking his life and then sacrificing himself to save Deckard and not kill Deckard, but reunite him with his daughter. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I picked mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now, would you, boy? <laughs> because it was like, it's not what you expected Deckard to say first entrance it was very surprising and, and really intriguing for that to be deckard's first thing that he says it's like a test yeah it was, it was cool i was like it was unexpected from treasure island the book he reads <laughs> <laughs> all right let's do a uh, uh movie quote competition movie quote. all right you ready i'm not a christian i'm not an atheist i'm not jewish i'm not muslim my religion what i believe in is called the constitution of the united states of america Huh. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. Hoo-ah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you say it again? What was up with your throat there? You sound like a different I person. Got a little... <laughs> <laughs> <Look at chest. laughs> I'm not a Christian. I'm not an atheist. I'm not Jewish. I'm not Muslim. My religion, what I believe in, is called the Constitution of the United States of America. The Ides of March. Oh, nice. Literally me? Literally. <laughs> literally I was in the Ides of March. Yeah. <laughs> literally, I was in the <laughs> You know, I was, I was actually young Hercules. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, here's my quote. You see, it's the slow knife. The knife that takes its time. The knife that waits years without forgetting, then slips quietly between the bones. That's the knife that cuts deepest. My God, I know this. Can you say it one more time? You see, it's the slow knife. The knife that takes its time. The knife that waits years without forgetting, then slips quietly between the bones. That's the knife that cuts deepest. I'm going to be so pissed when you... You are going to be so pissed. Hold on. Holding. Holding. I don't know. Talia al Ghul in The Dark Knight Rises. Damn it. When she stabs Bruce right in the fucking abdomen. All right, moving on to guess this movie release here. Anthony, when did Signs come out? 2002. Yes, he's correct. What year did Big Fish come out? Big Fish. 2003? Yes. Nice. Correct. <laughs> correct the window. Nice. All right, movie pop quiz time. Anthony and listeners. <laughs> like, you keep addressing me by name. Mr. Devaney. <laughs> Asshole. What <laughs> film stars Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt? That would be 
Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys. Yes, sir. Great movie. What film did Marion Cotillard win her Oscar for? It's called. What is this? Oh, what's the movie called? She plays the French singer. Um, this, the title. The song was actually, that's the song from Inception. Edith P.F. Different song, but same singer. Yeah. Same singer. Yeah. Um, but the title's uh, based on one of her songs. Je m'appelle Edith P.F. <laughs> <laughs> what exactly does Je m'appelle mean? Je m'appelle means my name is. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, man. <laughs> La Vie en Rose. Ah, that's what it is, yeah. La Vie en Rose, the life in pink. <laughs> My name is Ian. It's <laughs> a terrible title for a movie. It's a shot in the dark. You wouldn't happen to be pre-law. <laughs> Je m'appelle. Um, what do you got for haters this week, Anthony? Any unsubscribed? Any raider haters? We got some raider haters. There's a we got a bunch of haters on. I made a TikTok clip about the creator. Oh my god, yeah. Which is which came out last weekend. Now they shot this film on a four thousand dollar camera, a Sony FX3. Obviously, they had tons of high quality and expensive lenses, and made all sorts of kits with it. So they turn it into a very high-quality camera, which it still is, but it's a very low-budget It's a consumer cinema. camera. It's a, yeah, yeah, it's a low-budget, full-frame, censored cinema camera. And I talked about this on a TikTok clip, and I got maybe six comments where people are like, no, you're wrong. They'll use that for some sequences. They'll use shots and landscapes with it. But I looked it up on three websites and IMDb. All the technical specs say the whole film was shot with the Sony FX3. And there's actually behind-the-scenes footage of Gareth Edwards re- literally shooting it himself, like – Beach like some of the beach sequences of like dialogue scenes yeah. with the camera so, like him literally using the camera. Someone's like, "Get your facts straight. You're wrong." I'm like, "I'm not. <laughs> it's correct. I didn't look up the facts, but you better get them right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to look it up, but you should. I know the answer, and you're not right. Did I look it up? Don't have to. <laughs> okay, first up for our Raider haters, we got Ricky H. In the clip about. Me saying that George Clooney and Jennifer Lawrence were in a film together. Which was wrong. Uh, Ricky wrote, I'm with Anthony on this. James, you're wrong. Unsubscribe. Fact <laughs> <laughs> check false. I guess we know who Ricky prefers as a host. You posted on Twitter uh, our upcoming week on the podcast of 1999, Shawshank, and then Letterboxd Recap uh, in our new schedule. And then Evan wrote, no three-hour special on La La Land again? Unsubscribe. I mean, that should be something we should do this fall. We'll do it. We're going to do it soon. Very soon. Mason Kunstler on our 1994 episode wrote, <laughs> mentioned the original Lion King movie, but used the poster for the live action remake? Unsubscribed! I saw it. Yeah, you did do the live action. Yeah, you did the live action poster. For the for a clip I made for the yeah. box office? Yeah. Nah. You did live action Lion King on the clip you made. What? Hold on. Yeah. Hold hold the phone. You did the with them sitting behind, I mean, behind the lion singing, sitting. Was that the, that was the live action? You did the live action. <laughs> Hold on, hold on. I gotta look at this up. Did I really? Bozo. Where's the clip? What's in the box oh. office? Oh my god, that is the live action. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Bozo. I was, it, was, it, was a, it was a glance. I skimmed the photo. Oh, were you watching movies while you were editing? Sometimes. <laughs> You're like on autopilot. Then we got Varakai 
0723 wrote in our 1994 episode, you forgot Star Trek Generations. It was the first of the the new generations Star Trek movies unsubscribed. Ah, uh, we did. We for- There's another big movie we forgot from 1994 in that episode, but I can't remember. Anything Sounds else? like a great movie. It was, apparently. Uh, anything else? That's all for our haters. All right, I got a great five-star review from Call12. I finally found my podcast. As a massive film and TV show fan, I've finally found my podcast. These two do an amazing job at breaking down enjoyable and relevant shows. Each episode is well thought out, well researched, and overall, just an enjoyable time to flip things immediately upside down in their Harry Potter movie ranking episode. They claim (laughs) the invisibility cloak isn't used at all in the Chamber of Secrets. (laughs) While hiding under the cloak in Hagrid's hut, I guess that Fudge and Lucius... (laughs) Just have the worst <laughs> eyesight of all time. <laughs> Did we say that? I can't remember. Oh, we must have. Unsubscribe. JK, love you guys. Keep up the great work. <laughs> Did we, I, say, I, we must have. Yeah. It was probably you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Th- thanks for the correction. So we'll be, have to be feeding... So we'll have Someone to feed. have to feed. <laughs> What's the dog's name? Um, Fang. Fang. Fang will Fang have to be. We- Fang. Fang will need feeding. <laughs> That's a great review. Thank you so much. It made me laugh. Um, my streaming recommendation this week is Ready Player One, which is on Hulu. I chose this because it actually is connected to Blade Runner twenty forty nine. We'll get into that in a minute. <gasps> Just tell us right now. No, do your streaming rec, and I'll get into that. I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to know no, how it's I'm connected. gonna transition into the episode back into Blade Runner. All right, fine. <laughs> well, I picked Midnight in Paris. Which is on Max. It's a wonderful, wonderful film. I love it. And actually, was I did all of Marion Cotillard for my whole intermission, so she's also in Midnight in Paris. I heard you listening to that, watching that the other night. I was like, "What's that? I know that music so well. What's that song?" And it was, it was that. It was Mishmish is Mishmayithiaf. That's the song. Jemapel. 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 I mean, my French isn't great, but that's... Dude, you told it to me once. I'm not going to remember that. I haven't even seen it written. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into back into Blade Runner 2049. And I tease that it's connected to Steven Spielberg's film Ready Player One, How? adapted from the book, which came out in 2018, just a couple months after Blade Runner 2049. Now, in the book, Ready Player One, if you ever read it, and if you ever seen the movie, in the movie, they're... Didn't trying... know you could read. <laughs> let's get serious! In the, in the book... Yeah, well, in the movie, obviously, they're trying to find these keys inside the Oasis, this massive program, and so many references in the Oasis are to 80s culture, 80s pop culture, video games, movies. Now, in the book, one of the key locations is at Tyrell Corporation. Oh, my God. So what? you've read the book, right? I've read the, not the Ready Player One book, but the uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Okay, no, I'm talking about Ready Player I've One. I've never read that. So I, it's an awesome book. I highly recommend it. If you like the movie especially because there's so much that they couldn't make put into the movie. But in the in the book, they go to the Tyrell Corporation. He even speaks to Tyrell himself. And so that's where one of the – the Jasmine key, I believe, is that's where that's located is there. So Spielberg, when he was making the movie, was trying to get the rights to have a Blade Runner sequence in the film at Tyrell Corporation. But unfortunately, the producers and the people people on the rights to Blade Runner 2049 when they were making it, they wouldn't let it happen. But they thought that it would affect the box office of Blade Runner 2049, which obviously it couldn't have because it came out after Blade Runner 2049. 
So it would have been really cool to see, I think, and it kind of could have been a cool connection to the, both of these films. Well, I think because it was probably they were probably in development at the same time. It took a while to get ready. Yeah, Player probably. One. Yeah, right. Yeah, because Ready Player One came out in 2018. But I think that would have been awesome. So unfortunately, it didn't happen. But Spielberg, Spielberg is trying to get a sequence at Tyrell. Yeah, that's why um, most of the pop culture you see in it is owned by Warner Brothers, I believe. Pretty much all of it. A lot of it's Universal. Universal. Yeah. Un- yeah. Who made Ready Player One? Was I believe it, it. I believe it was. I, believe I think it was, it was a. Was it a co-distribution between those two? Well, I'm sure, it? so it's Amblin, obviously, because yeah. it's a Spielberg film. And I'm sure. Was, I'm sure it was Universal. Let me double check. Ready Player. One. Yeah, who's the? I think it might have been co-distribution or or co-production of some kind. Let's Google this. Ready? Just like how Twenty Four Nine was, because Twenty Four Nine was produced by Sony but distributed by Warner Brothers. Sure was. Now the film Ready Player One was a Warner Brothers Amblin production, mm-hmm. Village Roadshow as well. So no un- involvement with Universal. Yeah, that was. Yeah, it's pretty much all Warner Brothers owned IP that you see in the film. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure some of it was licensed out. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure some of it. I feel like there's plenty of Universal yeah. in other property, in other there's studio a, Yeah, there's owners. the T-Rexes in it. Yeah. The so, T-Rexes in it. Well, it's not like they have ownership over T-Rexes. It was the T-Rex, though. <laughs> we all know what T-Rex it was. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm sure that they just got licensing rights for some little products Certainly. and properties there. That's a great little nugget. Something. So something about the film we haven't touched on yet is the relationship between Kay and Joy. His digital girlfriend, which I find to be one of the more interesting aspects to the film. And it's just a fascinating series of scenes between these two. Uh, Joy is a program designed to be the perfect girlfriend, essentially. And she is Kay's preferred method of a relationship. He doesn't, like Marriott says, oh, you don't like real girls. He doesn't want a physical relationship. He cares more, in a way, about the emotional connection he can have with another being. And that's why he chooses joy. It's not about physicality. It's about uh, conversation. It's about uh, emotional depth. And it's about building a rapport and a relationship that way than just having, you know, in a way, a, a sex spot to have. Which I find more interesting for Kay. It shows that he's seeking for, he's looking for a deeper connection. He's seeking something more human than just physicality. But what's fascinating about joy is there's this kind of ambiguous question is she does she love Kay or does she just tell Kay what he wants to hear because she's designed that way so you can look you can look at it two ways you can it's throughout the course of the film especially right before she's her device is broken by love and she says through tears I love you to Kay is that real or is that just the program and then there's a scene when she goes out in the rain when he gets the the um, emanator, which allows her to go portable. Wherever the emanator is, she can be within, like, I think 100 feet or something like that. So she's no longer restricted to just the device in the apartment. And they go out in the rain, and they come close to each other, and she says, I'm happy when, when I'm with you. And he says, you don't have to say that. So in a way, he's he, in a way he's, he knows there is this that she's designed to be the perfect girlfriend for him. She's designed to love him and she's designed to say whatever uh, he wants to hear. But there are, there do seem to be hints that maybe she is growing her own kind of consciousness. Maybe she is growing attached to him. Um, Just how Kay is growing his own humanity and growing his own real emotions throughout the course of the film. Maybe she's experiencing the same thing or maybe 
she really is still just the program because it, it she does get quite emotional and she does seem to love him but then on the other side you, you they have that conversation about how case coding is made uh, in a much more complex fashion with four the basically four variation variables and then joy is made with the two variables of one, of one and zero and but replicants are made with four variables well it's dna dna is yeah it's the the dna of the replicant so they're basically saying uh, the replicant is much more sophisticated um basically ai well the, not I'm, an, just, I'm, yeah, I'm just yeah, trying yeah. to translate it's a human yeah. it's replicants are basically human yeah. that's what we have to yeah. understand okay. but i'm just trying to so but the, the, the it's four, made from coding the four codes it's yeah. it's dna yeah. they're made from their so it's a much more complex thing than just an ai digital ai that is joy binary yeah and then it's even uh marriott even says i've been inside you and it's not that it's you're not as complex as you might think you are she essentially says so is joy just a very advanced ai that seems to have genuine responses and emotions or does joy actually in a way evolve just like k does throughout the course of the film so, Joy is such a great character, and I think Anna de Armas was terrific in this role. She actually couldn't speak fluent English at this point, and she did four months of intense preparation of learning English before this because she was in War Dogs in 2016. She didn't speak any English. Obviously, maybe a couple sentences here and there and phrases, but she could not speak English in War Dogs. That came out in 2016. She learned her lines phonetically by hearing them recited and memorizing them. And then Blade Runner, she learned English pretty, pretty damn well, pretty quickly, to be able to speak really well in this movie and she's so good she's terrific and joy is such a great character and there's a lot to talk to about her with her in terms of does she have real consciousness is she developing feelings for real for Kay? and i think it also relates to the perception and the way the female characters are in this movie obviously joy there's a lot of criticism for the character about being in the male gaze stereotypical you know, dutiful girlfriend. Well, that's home. the criticism and, of the film. Yeah, no, yeah, of the film, the female characters. But that's what it's designed for. I know, I know, yeah. I'm getting to that. But that's something that you can critique. That it's fine to critique things like that. So there are a lot of critiques where people see Joy as a character that's just a pleaser for for a male character. But you have to understand the context of Joy as a program. Like Anthony was talking about, she's she's designed to make the user happy and to fill fulfill their needs. Joy fills the needs of what Kay wants and desires, which relates to the con the question of does she actually love Kay? In my opinion, this is going to sound very cynical and sad. I don't think Kay ever really has love for. I mean, I don't think Joy ever has love for Kay. I think that her entire programming is just designed to give Kay what he wants, and this is this is the these are the things that are making k happy and what he thinks he wants in terms of like this fake domestic bliss coming home to a uh, music being played she's cooking dinner for him uh, the illusion of it being a delicious cheese was it a cheeseburger with french fries or steak with french fries and she's constantly fulfilling his needs and his desires of wanting to be this child this special chosen boy this replicant that was born of replicants being a real boy woman born and she's constantly feeding into his wants and desires in terms of things that he wants to be true in that respect so i think that joy never has true ai or never truly loves k which is sad and i don't know if k ever truly loved joy 
because and also when it comes to the male gaze of this program and obviously she's this giant hologram all over the city very sexualized nude on a giant bridge you have to understand this this dystopian future and why these corporations are advertising a program like that this is a world that's full of loneliness and isolation that's always been relevant in a main theme of blade runner the original and this new one and that obviously has a connection to nudity and sexualization for advertisements. Loneliness and isolation are huge themes. Digital girlfriends, digital sex, these are growing trends in our real world right now. And obviously in a dystopian future where loneliness is huge, it's going to be even more exacerbated. That's why joy exists in this world for lonely and isolated people needing a connection marketed with nudity by shameless corporations so i think that's authentic to what that reality would be like in the dystopian future it doesn't make it necessarily okay for everyone when this when they watch this movie to agree with the nudity in this film if it's not for you or you don't understand why i think the context of this world is important to understand why joy the way she is is the way she is but it also relates to the other female characters in this film lieutenant joshi very strong female character, not sexualized. Love, very strong female character, not sexualized. Mariette uses sex to gain access to Kay by orders of FISA. However, the four main characters here with, with Joy, Lieutenant Joshi, Love, and Mariette, I think they're, that the script does do a slight disservice to them where they all have sexual desire for Kay or some sort of flirtation with Kay. Obviously, Lieutenant Joshi comes on to Kay. Love comes on to K, flirts with K. Mariette uses sex to get access to K, and Joy obviously is a romantic partner for K. So the four main female characters all have flirtation and sexual desire for K, which I think takes away from them. Maybe if it's just two, that'd be fine. But I think if all, f- I, I think that's an issue for a lot of people when they look at the female characters written for this movie specifically. All four intimate connection to K. It would have worked better if just the two replicants. Or were in, interested in Kay and not Matt. Definitely not Madam. Outside of Joy. Yeah, so outside. Love and Mariette. Sure. It's not, I don't think, yeah, I think it's totally I don't think Mariette's, val- I don't think Mariette's like interested, but she's just doing her job. No, but yeah, yeah. she's using sex. Yeah. In, but I think it's totally valid to have a differing opinion about the female characters in this movie. Yeah, you know? for sure. Absolutely. It really Feiss is the only one that doesn't come on to Kay. So when you have five female characters and only one doesn't come on to your main character, I think that's kind of a problem for me with for me and a lot of people with the script for the female characters. For for me, a moment that whenever I watch the film doesn't quite ring right for me is when Madam says, "What happens if I finish that bottle?" Exactly. That's the scene that I'm just like, I'm not sure we needed that. Kind of out of nowhere. I understand why we're in this scene, but that didn't really add anything to it and takes away from Madam. I think. And I understand you want to show that Kay is a special replicant. You know, he's a very attractive replicant. Very, I mean, probably designed very, that way. Yeah. Designed that yeah. way. Very sophisticated. Very, you know, capable. So obviously there would be desire for him for people. But also when the first four main female characters are all showing sexual desire to your lead, it's not great writing in my opinion. I agree. I think there, there are a couple instances in the film that for me put it down a peg from Blade Runner not yeah. to say that this isn't a bona fide modern masterpiece because I think it is but I'm, I'm talking Blade Runner is an all-timer like all-timer in history and there are, this is an example and then there are a couple other moments where for me it just takes it down slightly from the original so but, that's an, and another thing that 
takes it down a little bit for me is as much as I really like Neander Wallace, he seems to at times just be talking to the audience and just going on the a couple of especially the birthing sequence a little bit too long of uh, a rant, not really talking to anyone. It's just it's just like expunging dialogue. Love, she has to have known all this stuff that his desires and stuff. So when I sometimes some of the Neander Wallace scenes, it's a little too much dialogue for really no purpose other than to just get ideas across to the audience. That's another re- thing that, for me, Tyrell works much better than Wallace does in this film. Yeah, true, but I, I, I don't mind that at all because it's important to get that exposition of what Neander's goal is for creating fertility. Oh, no, among, yeah, I think uh, for, crea- for, for creating fertility amongst the replicants, I think you need to let the audience know, so I don't, I don't mind those rants that he goes on. No, no, so I, I want the exposition, but it might have worked better if he's explaining it to someone new who isn't aware of this stuff to get it across. Maybe Love didn't know. Well, that's what I'm saying. She, maybe that's why he's saying it, but for someone who's by his side all the time, it seems like something she would already be aware of. It's possible. That's so, a couple of things that, as amazing and incredible as the film is, it's just slightly below Blade Runner, the original. But so, Joy, do you think that Joy has evolved and has feelings, real feelings for Kay? I, it's tough. They, you want to say no, but then and then you want to say yes, but then... What they did a great job of with the performers and then with the writing and direction is like, it really can go both ways. Sometimes when I watch the film, I say, no, she doesn't feel anything for him. She's just a, she's just a program. And then sometimes when I watch the movie, I'm like, oh, maybe she did transform in the same way that, that Kay transformed. I think that it's possible that with the idea of Kay being real, in, in truly born and having a, a soul, maybe that opens up that same kind of possibility for Joy believing that in herself. I personally just don't think she has the coding capabilities to be able to have that. I think she's just pleasing Kay to what he wants. And in it's, terms a great, of being that, and it's a great like uh, f- front. Yeah, it's just a great program. Yeah, that's what the program, program. That's what the yeah. program of Joy is designed to do is just to feed what you want. That's what she's designed to do. And I think there are two huge revelations that reveal that Joy and Kay, it's not a real relationship and they don't they're not really in love even though Kay wants it to be love and wants it to be real. He knows it's not. Two really important moments, the rooftop when he's about to kiss her and they're trying to, you know, t- intimately touch it and be physical. Obviously they can't. And she freezes because the phone's coming in. And what's he do? He takes the call while looking at her, and then when the phone hangs up, he looks at her for like five seconds and then puts her back in the emanator, revealing like, oh, this isn't real. This isn't a real person. This isn't a being. It's just a program. And the second one is after Joy is destroyed, after he gets beat up and he's got the tape on his nose and everything, and he's walking around along that viaduct or that bridge, and he sees the massive hologram billboard advertisement of Joy speaking to him. It's a different sounding voice, but it's Joy. And I think that's a revelation for him to realize she's not real. She never loved me. She was just a program. What can I do to make myself feel real? And it's what the pro, it's what that hologram says to him. You look like a good Joe. So the hologram, who has no familiarity with Kay, calls him Joe. The same name that his Joy called him. Joe. So the fact that's a reveal that it's just a program that's designed to say certain things. And so even though it seemed like a genuine thing, I'm going to na- let's name you Joe. 
that's a great name. It seemed in the moment in his apartment, like, oh, this is like she really just came up with that idea. Because she had a real name, yeah. But ultimately, that's what the program calls every man a Joe. Exactly. And that's why there's this interpretation, I think, of Joy just being the male gaze, like the perfect, unrealistic girlfriend. It's because that's what the program Joy is designed to do. Yeah. And just the. The dinner scene, their first scene together, she's like, let's go dancing. He's like, I don't want to. He's like, I don't want to get dancing. She's like, oh, never mind. I don't. And she changes her up multiple times and just does whatever he wants. If he doesn't want to do something, forget it. We'll, we'll move on to the next thing. If you don't want to do that, oh, don't worry about that. We'll do the next thing. So it's always about pleasing the clients and telling the client exactly what he wants to hear. Yeah, although the, I think there is some authenticity to Joy. I think that's shown visually with her outfits of choice of when she's not trying to please Kay to whatever needs he wants by reading him in terms of his mood is she kind of has her her look. Like, it's sort of like when you're in the Matrix and you have your own projection of what your outfit would be. She seems to have her own projection of her own sort of outfits that she likes versus the ones that she'll put on to sort of please a moment. But maybe that outfit is just the program's understanding of what would Kay like the most for his girlfriend. Exactly. What would it want? He, he would prefer a casual, low-key kind of look um, for his girlfriend as opposed to anything else. So maybe even her choice of outfit is still just reflective of the clients i love that and i love this movie because overall the plot is excellent so basically k is a blade runner lapd and he works for lieutenant joshi played by robin wright terrifically in this movie she's excellent and the film opens up with him going to sapper's place and and basically killing sapper who is a nexus 8 with an open-ended lifespan who survived the rebellions and this mystery starts where he discovers this box underneath the tree and then they dig it up and they find the skeletal remains of a person that gave birth, died in childbirth. But then they discover that this person, the skeletal, these skeletal remains belong to a replicant, meaning that this replicant gave birth to a person, gave birth to a replicant, which should be impossible. And now Lieutenant Joshi... Her goal is to wipe out any evidence of this because she wants to preserve the world. She does not want everything to fall into chaos, which it would if it was discovered that replicants could give birth and could procreate and were fertile. And then Neander Wallace, on the other hand, obviously gets wind of this. And his goal is to discover this child, to find the child so that he can use that child and basically dissect them and use the secrets of their DNA and their being to create fertility, organic fertility, amongst his new line of replicants and at the same time Kay's having these memories that he knows are implanted but they start to become so real as he discovers truth behind them obviously the memory of him being this child in this orphanage hiding this wooden horse feels real when he discovers the date that he finds at sapper's tree matches the horse that he discovers at the orphanage when he's looking for the records of the child 6-10-2021 which was blade runner day a few years ago which was so cool everyone was celebrating it and now he starts to believe that he is this special replicant. He was born. So he starts to discover more information, starts to keep secrets. He's His consciousness is starting to shift to, do I have a soul? Was I born? Do I really exist? Am I 
more than human in my or replicants more than human and starts to believe that until he starts to unravel more and more truths obviously discovering Deckard in Las Vegas questioning him about Rachel who he thinks is his mother which is such a great scene which we'll talk about more because you can assume he thinks Deckard is his father in a lot of ways that's why that scene the first time you watch it is so fascinating where they have this fight and everything but is Deckard is this my dad and then obviously Wallace and Love discover them in the great third act of rescuing Deckard what a synopsis. Thanks, man. <laughs> it's a great plot. When I saw the scene of him finding the horse, that was like such a shocking scene the first time you see the film. You're like, holy shit, that's real? That thing's real? <laughs> <laughs> so did you, the first time you watched it, did you, did you think he was the child? Yeah. I thought I think so they too. did a great job of misleading the audience and just like how Kay's being misled. But there's another hint of Deckard being confirmed to be a replicant. And it's just through dialogue that both he and Kay say. So Kay says uh, in the memory scene when he visits Staline, he, sa- he says multiple times, I know what's real. I know what's real. And then he throws the chair. He's like, God damn it! <laughs> but before that, he says multiple times, I know what's real. Deckard says the same thing when Wallace is instigating him and teasing him about memories and implants and if he's a replicant or not. Deckard says multiple times, I know what's real, I know what's real. So they both say that line, and the way I look at it is that's Villeneuve and the writers confirming that they're both replicants who are questioning reality. That's a great point. Something really great about this movie is, you know, when you watch the trailer, it looks like a big action blockbuster film, but really at the core it's not. There are really only a handful or less of action sequences in this movie. I mean, we have that fight with... Kay and Sapper in the opening. We have Kay when he's going to San Diego and his ship gets shot down. And we have that great <laughs> satellite ship bombing of all the people and the raiders that are coming after Kay from love, which is wild. And then we have the action sequence at the end, the big waves one with Kay and love. And a couple of other ones there, obviously, with the Kay, fight with the Kay, Kay, and Deckard. And Kay and Deckard yeah. in Las Vegas. But there really are only a handful of action sequences, and they aren't really that long either because this movie is really well-written. It's really well-paced, and I think that you have a two-hour two and 43-minute movie. On the surface, it looks like an action blockbuster, but it's really a very meditative film talking about the soul and consciousness, what it means to be human, concepts of fertility, Concepts of slavery, slave labor, you know, Neander Wallace is terrible antagonist who has this great dialogue talking about replicants, how how he, he thinks the world's failed because we lost our appetite for slave labor. So he created the ultimate slave labor with the Nexus 9s. That's how he's been able to colonize nine different worlds off planet. He sees himself as a god in so many different ways. And I think there's so many great nuggets of dialogue in this movie and so many concepts that it's exploring that it requires multiple watches to really understand everything that's going on. I actually, it's funny you say that, I connected something about love, that the character love, that I never noticed before uh, from this rewatch. So love is called an angel multiple times by Wallace. And the then, best angel. Yeah, the best angel. And then Kay, I think, maybe calls her an some maybe not Kay, but Wallace calls her an angel multiple times. And then in the sequences of the bombings and the attacks, so the bombing of the raiders when they're attacking Kay, he looks up at the sky and she's been doing she has a drone. We don't actually see the drone for I'm gonna tell you why. They never show the drone. Well they show the drone later on 
But it might be a different drone. No, they show. They just show in the sky a glimmer. That's of what light. I'm saying. Yeah, it's not. A, it's, they don't show the drone at all. It's just a a, a a light, and it's the same light that Kay sees in Las Vegas before the attack. He sees this little glowing light in the distance. It's an angel. So love is. It's love's drone, and she's like an angel in the sky. She's this beautiful glowing white light in the sky and so he sees it in the sky overhead uh, in the the garbage town and then he sees san diego san diego and then <laughs> he's he, he not calling san diego a garbage town in the city in this film <laughs> is and then he sees the little glowing light the angel in the distance in las vegas right before the other drone attack that's so, really interesting so yeah. love is like an angel but a dark angel and i, I love I love Love as a character. She's so interesting because she's so unlike other replicants because replicants in the Nexus 9s, according to Wallace, they're not really supposed to empathize. They're not supposed to lie. They're not supposed to tell secrets like we talked about earlier, but they, her and eventually Kay start to lie and tell secrets. But it seems like Love has already been doing this for a while where Kay is just starting to do this as his world's kind of being shifted in terms of focus of am I this child do I have a soul was I born that's what's starting to mess up his you could say conscious programming of being engineered biologically whereas love has been doing this for a while she acts out on rage multiple times she hides tears and emotions from Neander Wallace and she even hits on and flirts with Deckard pretty early on in the film Kay. When he's, I mean on, on Kay at Neander Wallace's headquarters and also, she has this obsession with being the best replicant. I am the best, especially in the fight in the wave sequence at the end of the third act where her and Kay are squaring off. And after she thinks she's defeated him, she walks off and she says, I'm the best. I'm the best one. So she's got this obsession with not only being superior to humans, but also being the best replicant and the superior replicant to all others, which shows you that Kay... That's why people are drawn to him in a lot of ways, because he's probably a very advanced Nexus 9. And I'm assuming there aren't many Nexus 9s out there in the world. Probably in... In terms of the qualities that Kay has, because Neander makes Nexus 9s. That's the new model, but many of them, like when she, when Love is... They're not the, as advanced. Yeah, as like, with yeah. the interview with that woman, like, but you don't need to have... Intelligence. To be too intelligent. Yeah. You know, they don't need to empathize that much with you. So the thing with Love and Kay in, in their discussion in the records room... I'm glad you pointed it out because she she does kind of make a, a couple of moves at him and she's inspired by the recording with Deckard and Rachel because Deckard and Rachel in their discussion, Kay says she likes him. She's provoking him. Um, and then Love, in a way, tries to imitate it. And she says it's nice being, she basically says it's nice being asked personal questions. It makes you feel like, it's invigorating. It's invigorating because nobody ever asks her a personal questions. So you can tell that she's been desiring having actual real interactions with other people that aren't just based on professionalism and coding and what she's designed for um, as Wallace designed her. And so you can see that even though Kay has, goes through this evolution in the film, she's already been through this kind of evolution. And so she craves that. And then she tries to do that with Kay where she asks him a personal question. Do you like your job? She's asking him a personal question and Kay immediately puts a wall up and rejects it and says, um, thank you. Tell Mr. Decker, thank you for Mr. Wallace. Mr. <laughs> tell, tell, <laughs> tell Mr. Wallace, thank you for your time as opposed to answering her personal question. And so he's rejecting talking about anything personal because he's not craving that yet, but she craves it. And then also there's a great little series of cuts after that. She 
puts the the recording back in the drawer and she closes the drawer and then she looks at Kay in the reflection as a way of like connecting with him through eyes and then he sees that she looks at him and then he looks down so he's again rejecting her attempt to make a personal connection with her she wants it and he's rejecting it and Kay's an, an excellent detective I mean people always bring up like great detective movies and detective characters Kay's an excellent detective obviously he gets it all kickstarted in the opening when he f- discovers the little flower at Sapper's tree this dead tree it's one of the only trees for probably hundreds of miles and it's dead obviously but he discovers this little yellow flower which makes you assume was Deckard here recently where'd this flower come from or did Sapper put it there like it's really interesting to wonder who put that flower there at this obvious grave site that's been hidden from the world and I like to think that maybe Deckard or someone put it there recently. Well, so I wouldn't call it an obvious gravesite. It's it's no for the person who for the yeah yeah, yeah, say yeah obvious yeah no I mean I meant for like we just we know it's an obvious yeah, gra- yeah. we'll find out it's a gravesite yeah. and so yeah you're right he's like why would someone put a flower not to mention this flower yeah. shouldn't be here yeah, this is so yeah. rare and why would it be placed like this like personally and specifically placed like this and that's you're right that's what gives him the idea that there might be something that is being in a way ritualized or celebrated because of this flower here so let's search it and then also another one is the piano noticing that the piano one of the keys is dead and pressed down and so he's like maybe there's something on the string inside of it and then that's where he finds the box with the sock and so many other things the whole plot is discovering mysteries and, and unraveling clues which a lot of detective and noir movies this is very much a noir film try to do but don't don't always work that well i mean chinatown's an excellent example or the best example which is why bad for glass yeah bad for bad for grass where um you know these clues lead to this big mystery it's tough to do especially for a blockbuster film like this blade runner pulled it off but i think you know this movie has so many connections to chinatown in terms of this great mystery being unraveled by k and using the dna code the dna records from post blackout to discover the anomaly of these two this boy and this girl that have matching dna which means that it's a cover-up no two beings have the same dna not completely and discovering that one of them survived, discovering that so he thinks the boy survived, and obviously leads him to thinking he's the boy. But this passion he puts into detection, he discovers all of these clues, going to San Diego and discovering the records have been torn out. Obviously, you can assume that it was the replicants that tore these records out. That's how I view it. They caused the blackout. They tore out the records of the orphanage from 19, or what was it? What year would it have been? 2019, 2020, of when the child was there. Or, I mean, that's covering the, their tracks. In the 2020s, yeah. covering their tracks, eliminating all records of this child existing, but then cleverly going to the person who creates these memories to discover the truth to this horse, what's going on, and not realizing yet that this is the person, this is the child, but discovering it later on that, that is the, that's the daughter, that's the child. And in terms of investigation, what often happens with uh, films with characters like that is you get a lot of dialogue. And a lot of things being spelled out eventually. But with Kay, we're literally following him without words as he's discovering things, looking at things, finding clues. And he doesn't have like a partner to have a back and forth with, which I think works better. You're not having all this unnecessary dialogue. They're showing rather than telling for everything. And even something that, another thing that like what inspires him to actually go look in the furnace is... He's at the desk and he discovers the cutout pages you just mentioned. And then he sees that the ashtray is in the shape of a horse. 
he's like, is this real? And then that's really like the final catalyst for him to actually go check the furnace because yeah. he recognized the area from his memories, but he's like, no, they're just implants. They're just implants. But then seeing that horse ashtray, he's like, okay, I'm going to check the furnace now. And then the horse leads to Las Vegas. Every clue leads to the bigger clue. And that will lead to another clue. <laughs> wait and that will lead to another clue. <laughs> Do you have any lemons? <laughs> National treasure. Um, and the horse obviously leads to Las Vegas where he gets the horse analyzed and discovers that it's got that specific type of radiation. There's only one place where that radiation is, Las Vegas from nuclear fallout. No one's been there because of the nuclear fallout and radiation there. It's been an uninhabitable. Or that they think. Exactly. But then Kay goes to Las Vegas and he discovers the bees. And obviously if there are bees here. <laughs> the bees. The not bees. the bees. He discovers. Another Nick Cage reference. <laughs> not the bees. I'm he sorry. Just... <laughs> He discovers the bees, and what that means is there's obviously someone here taking care of these bees. So there's a human here, there's a person, there's a replicant here. Someone. And the radiation levels are actually very minimal, and they're not as bad as society thinks. The society thinks it's uninhabitable. Well, he sees it first because the yeah. bee falls on his finger. He's, there shouldn't be a bee here. So shouldn't be able to survive. Something that's the public has been misled about this area of being um, radiation levels too high to live in. Exactly, and that's those are all the clues that... K leads to his investigation, which basically for him ends once Deckard gets taken by Wallace Corporation and Love and their henchmen. Then he's out of clues basically until he's fortunately saved with that tracking device that Mariette put on him by FISA and her rebellion and her rebels of replicants, which is great because you think that Mariette's up to no good by putting this tracking device on K. Is she working for Wallace? Who's she working for? And then, fortunately, the story continues where now he gets rescued by them and is put on this mission to go kill Deckard. So we have this great third act conclusion, but also it's great motivation to continue the story to bring Kay back to Deckard in love. Yeah, Kay gets fucked up in this movie. He does. He's He gets beat up. He gets his ass beat by Zapper. Then he gets beat up by Deckard. And then he gets pummeled um, by uh, Love's crew. Yeah, he goes through hell. I mean, the thing with replicants, it, it seems like they don't really feel pain. I think that's something. No, they feel pain, but a very limited amount of it. They re replicants feel pain just as much as a human does. The whole point is to make them feel everything that a human feels. Yeah, but he gets stabbed, and I mean, he gets beat up multiple times. And he, it seems like a Terminator kind Have you ever of. You seen a John Wick movie? Yeah, but still, John's like limping and like, oh man, that hurt. But they will know, so they have exceptional strength. Yeah. But they still feel pain as much but as they, a human. Okay, but they probably have great pain receptors yeah, yeah. in response to yeah. pain but versus a human, if they got beat up as much as K, like they'd be in intense pain, whereas he can just glue that cut no problem. Yeah. For, so for him, probably his pain response isn't as strong as a human's. It, it's the intense strength as well. They have incredible strength. And, and healing, because yeah. as soon as he, he glues glue that, it, he glues it, and then it starts to heal itself. And they subtly show the strength of a replicant with love when that door in the records filing room won't open. It's like this very heavy metal door, and she's like, sorry, no one's been in here in ages. And then she just slides it open, ah! and you hear, it, you hear that scratching of metal on metal. Yes. Like, holy shit, how strong is she? Plus K, obviously, when he fights Sapper in the opening, clearly showing that they're insane replicant strength. And also, I love when... um. Deckard and Kay are running to that ship in Deckard's other suite when they realize they've been tracked there and they're about to be attacked. And Deckard runs to the door and closes it behind Kay. Then Kay just runs to the wall. That's great. <laughs> I love I love that shot. But 
Um, the Deckard and K sequence is really fantastic. I love it. It's this kind of journey to them eventually leading to the drink. But obviously, Deckard's gonna attack whoever shows up. So it makes sense for him to attack K uh, to lead him into this false sense of security with the questioning, but then to fire the gun at him. And then I really like the, the Las Vegas showroom sequence. Really cool lighting. A lot of that was actually practically done. Obviously not the hologram, but all that lighting was really practically done. I thought it was really interesting. The sound design and, and the lighting of that sequence was really intriguing for an action sequence. But what's funny is it's not Elvis. That's actually an Elvis impersonator because they couldn't get the rights to Elvis. It looks like him. Oh, yeah, yeah, it looks just like him, but it's actually an Elvis performer is playing Elvis in the hologram. And same thing with the Marilyn Monroe that's not Marilyn Monroe. It's, it's a Marilyn Monroe lookalike performing as Marilyn Monroe, the hologram, because they couldn't get the rights to them. It's really interesting. And what's also interesting about the fight is Deckard knows he's outmatched in terms of when it's just hand-to-hand combat, just punching each other. He knows he can't really hurt this advanced replicant. He knows that these punches are pointless, that he's getting tired. But he still keeps throwing them. He keeps throwing these punches over and over again. You can see the hate and the rage inside of him deep down until he wears himself out. And you, you can't help but question, why is he why is he not giving up this fight right now? And you can assume he just feels so much anger to the powers that be that took Rachel from him, that, that forced them to be outcasts, the people coming after his daughter in the rage and, and pain of never having met his daughter before, of having to protect her. What he says to Kay later on, like, Sometimes if you love somebody, you have to be a stranger to them. He's never met his daughter before, and that's so sad and so tragic. And I'm sure they didn't plan on getting pregnant, him and Rachel, and they probably didn't think it would be possible, but it happened. And they had a plan where they were going to go into exile, and Decker was going to disappear from them as well, and they could never see each other again in order to protect the child. So you can only imagine that 20, 30 years of that built up, what it would do to somebody who's been in exile and isolation, how much anger they would feel. And that's what I see. But then he wears himself out. He's like, all right. We, we could keep-, keep on this all day or we could get a drink. <laughs> I'll, I'll take, take the, the drink. drink. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you see that anger when they're sitting at the bar. Just Decker just, just glaring at him the whole time. And I really love Harrison Ford in this movie. It's, it's actually one of my favorite performances of him in this century that he's done. It might be his best acting that he's done because he does he does quite a lot of – incredible performing and then Ryan Gosling is excellent but it is you're right it's a, it's a fascinating situation because Kay at this moment and the audience at this moment if you're first time watching it you think that Deckard is his dad it's heavily implied and you are along for the ride you're like Kay is this child now he's talking to his dad and you're like I remember the first time watching this in theaters I'm like say something about being his dad say I'm your son come on say something but instead they wisely choose to focus on uh, Rachel because Kay is just so curious about who is this person? What was she like? He doesn't ask who she is. The first thing he asks is what was she like? The mother of your child. So he wants to know what is my mom like? Who was she? That's what I find really smart about the writing of the dialogue is he's not trying to figure out facts. He's trying to understand. I believe this person gave birth to me. She's not alive, but what who was she? What was she like as a person? 
I and think it's great. He also discovers more carved animals. So clearly, yes. Deckard carved this horse for his daughter as an act of, I'll never see you again, but here's something from me to you. Which is obviously why K.E. believes in even more that he's the child until they get attacked, Deckard gets taken away, but then K gets rescued, and now he's with those replicant rebels, and great dialogue here, and we get the motivations for the replicants in Fisa, Frisa, sorry. Better be Fr sorry. Frisa, Frisa, Frisa. Frisa. <laughs> Frisa. I think it's Fr Frisa. It's Fraser. <laughs> Where now, K's learning, he learns that he's not the child. He learns that they all wish they were, and she even feels empathy for him. You thought you were the one. You thought you were the child. We all wish you we were. But they know that a baby can come from one of us. And she says, if a baby can come from one of us, we're our master's masters. We're more human than human. And dying for the right reason is the most human thing we can do. So you must kill Deckard. She, this child, she's going to be the leader of our army. We're building an army. We have one. We're about to attack. We're about to rebel. This child born of a replicant will be our leader. And that's Man, imagine if they made a third one. I know. It would have been amazing. It would have been so good. So I, I love the sequence. And, you know, this is Kate. Gossing does so much great nonverbal acting, specifically in this moment, because his world's been so flipped upside down. He's so confused. He thought he had a soul, and now I think he thinks he doesn't have a soul anymore, but that's why he does this final act of saving Deckard and re reuniting him with her daughters to get a soul. Yeah, with the nonverbal acting, it's this moment and then also the hologram moment when he decides to change his plan. But then my favorite bit of nonverbal acting is w beautiful shot of when he grabs the horse out of the furnace and discovers that it's really sees the date, and Villeneuve cuts to... Gosling for like 10 seconds and he's just shaking and his eyes are red and he's just like his his body is just like vibrating with just like the shock of what's happening Gosling is so incredible in that moment one of my favorite non-verbal acting moments from in this movie also is when he first goes to Dr. Staline getting information and she has him sit in that chair to see the memory that he's been having and thinking of to see if it's real or not, see whether it was lived by by a person. And obviously she starts looking at the recording and the look on Gosling as K, as K, his face is so hopeful but childish but also naive and innocent and scared. And it's a great like 15 second hold on this shot of just Gosling in this in this role and right here in this moment. And then when he finds out it's the memory was lived, he's just like with his he does a lot with his eyes, and his his face will be pretty uh, unchanging, but his eyes are wandering, and you can see like it's his mind thinking. And he Gosling's always been a great nonverbal actor because when we. We in real life we don't really show our emotions as much as they do in movies. Not even close. If you're, oftentimes when people are scared, they're not like, <gasps> they're frozen in their. It's the interior of them is what's it's freaking out. You're freaking out on the inside, but on the out on the outside, you're most of the time you're kind of frozen. And same, we often hide our emotions. We often hide how we're feeling, and we're putting on a blank face. We're often putting on a visage, and. A front for what's really happening on the interior. Gosling understands that a lot of actors don't quite get that right, but Gosling's one that get gets it. He nails it down. He gets criticized. I see online of people saying he he's too boring. He doesn't do much. 
um, with his face, and he doesn't really emote that much. He do, he has in other roles, but he understands human behavior so well that he knows that that's more truthful of a performance to show a less emotion on the face, but show that you're it's it's really all internalized, and we're not really projecting what's happening inside of us a hundred percent. So he understands that as an actor, and then playing a replicant. It's probably dialed to 11, and so I think it works really well for the performance. Yeah, and the final like three sequences I think are really powerful in this movie going forward. We have Deckard and Neander, who brings in this, the new version of Rachel to entice Deckard to tell him where the child is, who the child is. And this nexus, this version of Rachel is made just for Very you. Very good things can come to you. And it's a, it's a great job visually, I think. This Sean Young, obviously, they recreated her her face from that era pretty well CGI, and it looks really solid. And it was a combination of a body double on set, her digitally, and then they used the CGI. They modeled the CGI from her original performance. The age her yeah. and put her face on top of this body. And they also had a voice double to that sounded. Yeah, like that's her not too. her voice. So, yeah. but she's she did participate in the sequence. So it's great visual effects, and I think they did a good job of not showcasing too much of it because the uncanny valley sets in where it looks too fake or kind of it's unrealistic. It's the mouth. It's, yeah. when people, it's when they speak. It's really what it shows. But they do a good job of just showing minimal versions of it in the camera angles, the lighting. It's solid. So it works for me, and I think they did a really great job. But the sequence is great where Neander's trying to bribe Deckard with his love and his loss of Rachel to get the information, but Deckard does, isn't phased, and he says... Her eyes were green. Her eyes were green. And Get love, off my plane. And then love just shoots her. It's so crazy. why did they use the young version of Sean Young? So they could have had her reprise her role, and they could have made her age appropriate to match Deckard and the age she would have been. But I think Wallace, and they're thinking, they wrote and directed the film, they're, they're taking Wallace's perspective. What would Wallace do? Wallace decided that, the most powerful sight for Decker would be to recreate the first time he saw Rachel. So the first time he saw Rachel in Tyrell Corp, when she walked into the room and the warm sun was just pouring on her face. And that's when Decker, that was his first moment of seeing her. And that's when immediately he, he fell for her in a way. Because so, he was designed to, yeah. Exactly. So Wallace was like, if I'm going to approach this, Let's recreate Rachel to that exact moment so he can have the exact same kind of response to the first sight of Rachel. So that's why I believe they chose to do the young, de-aged version of Sean Young. I think, yeah, I completely agree. From Neander's perspective, that's definitely what he thought would get the best emotional response to get the information from Deckard. And since that doesn't work, he's going to take him off world and torture the hell out of him because you don't know pain. You don't know pain yet. (laughs) Although this is a plot point where for me... You know, he could torture him on Earth. It just extends the plot for Kay to catch up, which yeah. for me, I understand. You got you to gotta make your main character catch up to the, the main antagonist and try to save Deckard. And I'm sure they try to figure out a way for him to break like, into Wallace headquarters. But I guess this is a way to, you know, give Kay time to get to him. But for me, it's also like you can't torture him on Earth. I, I, I agree with the trying to buy him first. But yeah, you could, you, it may be the torturing chamber is off-world, it's just maybe illegal to have any of that equipment on Earth, possibly. But you're right, it is kind of like a making the plot happen. I don't mind it. Yeah. But there's one thing 
another reason why I I bring this down from Blade Runner is because Love doesn't kill Kay twice when she could have. Yeah. And Kay ends up foiling the plan. So she didn't she chose not to kill him in Las Vegas. And then she chose not to kill him on the waterfront. She stabs him, shoots him, but he's still alive. And then he comes back to kill her. So for me, it's two instances where she could have killed him and it would have ended the plot. But she chose not to finish the job both times. I wonder if from from Love's point of view, she doesn't want to waste someone like that. Maybe she doesn't want to waste Kay. Such well, a, no, she thinks he's gonna. She intends for him to die in, yeah. in the water on the water banks. Yeah, maybe, but, but I maybe, think for me, it was like just, just kill, make sure he's dead. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Those, but I don't yeah, mind yeah, the it. Vegas one. Yeah. I don't mind them. It's 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 fine. But when you compare it to Blade Runner, is really moment by moment, it's perfection. It's perfect. Every beat, every every line. There's nothing that you can question about Blade Runner whatsoever. The the love sequences, those ones, those decisions. That's something that like you can be like, ah, oh, she could have killed him. It wouldn't have that story wouldn't have happened. Yeah, well, the waves one. It's because I think they need to figure out a way for Kay to die later on. They need him to be dying by, exactly for the end, yeah. end of the film. So so mortally wounded. Mortally yeah. wounded because obviously his rescue of Deckard is awesome. It's great, and defeating. And drowning I love, um, love yeah. underwater it's is, is awesome. It's great such a great scene. sequence. And saving Deckard is excellent, and they really get con- a connection there. And what does he, what's he do? He brings him to his daughter. Are you ready to meet your daughter? And brings him to the facility where she creates the memories, her, her business, her HQ, and lets Deckard go. And even Deckard's worried about, worried about Kay. I mean, Joe, he calls him Joe. Multiple times. Like, yeah, now he's, he's like, calling he, him he Joe. He almost like rescues Joe from he's the like, water. He's like, Joe! Joe, are you okay? And then um, he's like, are you okay? When they're walking up the steps and Joe says he's fine. Go see your daughter. And then we have the great... With that gosling charm. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get and the... And he smiles. Yeah. Smiles. And then we get the, the great theme from the original Blade Runner. We get the tears in the rain theme from the end of Blade Runner when Roy Batty's dying. And instead of raindrops, we have snow falling on... Kay's hand he's watching it dissolve in his hand and I think in this moment Kay you know he looks up into the sky and then slowly falls back into the steps to die he knows he's dying I think in this moment Kay feels like he has a soul and I think he feels human and for me it's a happy ending for Kay because he's done the most human thing he could possibly do and that's dying for the right reason yeah and then the snow dissolving on his hand it's just like tears in the rain um, memories disappearing, the snowflakes disappearing on his hand, and then also it's like his translation of he's beginning to he's feeling, you know he's he's I think he's found his humanity and he's discovered that he he does have a soul, and so I look at his death as a happy death, of him feeling like he served his purpose and and became more than just what he was designed and created to be, and it's a it's a beautiful shot of. The overhead, yeah, but I love the profile of him looking up. It's just a very tight profile with snow falling all around him. It's a great shot. And it's a clean ending because he tells Deckard, you drowned out there. You're wiped clean. You have a clean slate at life. You did die. Yeah, so you're dead. So now you can go meet your daughter, and you don't have to worry about anyone chasing you anymore, and you guys can be together and live a life. And it's a great ending where I love they just end it where Deckard walks in and sees his daughter and she walks up to him and he just puts his hand on the glass and we cut. I love how there's no dialogue, no like, oh my god, it's finally you. 
they just know and we we know that's all that we need from the ending of the film i love the ending and i it's i love the cut to black from deckard with a smile it was it's just like you weren't expecting a happy ending when you walked into this movie but it works and it's great and it, it really is a perfect ending for the film it, it really is do you think that by the end of the film do you think that k has a soul Yes, I think he. I think that he always had the soul. I think that replicant, especially Nexus Nine's, um, being alive is proof that you have a soul, and they're not just a program; they are a living being. But it's about ex- the thing is they're designed and programmed to think that they don't have a soul, but in reality they do. And then this is the whole story for K is the revolution. Uh, res- revolution inside of his mind of understanding that oh i am a being i am alive i've been programmed and told that i'm not but i actually always have and now i'm now i'm beginning to recognize that and discover that yeah i agree i agree and the world of blade runner will continue so amazon has purchased the rights and they're making Blade Runner 2099 which is going to be a tv series set 50 years after the events of 2049 obviously and there's no release date yet, although it's been confirmed that it will come out around mid-2025, but that's at the absolute earliest, and obviously with the strikes going on now that WJ is over, SAG is still going on, so I'm sure they're still in development of this project. I'm not sure if they have finished scripts, who knows? There's really no details, no plot details confirmed or, or released at all. All we know is it's called Blade Runner 2099, and it will be coming out in 2025. I uh, don't trust Amazon Prime. I'm kind of worried about that. I'm kind of worried about that. I mean, this movie worked because Ridley was still heavily involved, and they gave they clearly gave Denis all the creative freedom he wanted. And we clearly saw with Prime the last few years that they're not as much interested in in crafting incredible films and stories and um, for big IPs. For big IPs. I mean, we still get great films. From oh yeah, them. they they make some good like stuff. Air but, is awesome. Yeah, but I mean, from after Rings of Power, I just have no faith in them. Not when it comes to an IP in a blockbuster franchise. I, I don't really have the faith in Amazon right now at, at all either. But who knows? Maybe they're going to change it up a little bit. Maybe it'll be great. We can't tell. But it will continue. So we will be getting more Blade Runner. And there's obviously Blade Runner, the Lotus was an anime, right? Yes. Or, and yeah, I haven't anime. seen that yet, but it's supposed to be really good. I want to check that I out. I heard good things about it, yeah. Yeah, but it's a, it's a world that's, you know, rich for mining, for material for sure. And I mean, as much as we don't want reboots and sequels and over and over again, I mean, it is what it is. So, I mean, hopefully they do a good job. I really do because we love Blade Runner and we love this franchise. We love the world that they built and it's excellent. All right, question. This or the original? Blade Runner 2049 or the original? You got to pick one. I think that Blade Runner is the superior film. But that doesn't mean that I don't think that Blade Runner 2049 so you hate Blade Runner isn't 2049. a borderline masterpiece in one of the best science fiction films of the century. Agreed. Completely agreed. Blade Runner is just, it's a special movie. It's an all-timer. All it changed movies. It changed the genre. Science fiction wouldn't be what it is without Ridley Scott. And I think Blade Runner was very special. And I mean, Ridley Scott is, uh, I believe, Denis Villeneuve's favorite filmmaker. Probably. not. Uh, he's definitely up there, he said. Um, and so, like, your favorite filmmakers wouldn't wouldn't be making the films they are today if it weren't for Ridley and I mean, what he did with Blade Runner. If you haven't seen Blade Runner in a while, I'm sure everyone's listening to this has probably seen the first one. But watch it, and you'll be 
and then realized it was made in 1982. You're, that's one of those movies where it's like, they made this in 1982, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, the filmmaking is just astounding, and they replicated a lot of that in the new one. Uh, pun intended. With they did. They threw that great Atari reference in there. Yeah, but yeah. But, but not just the Atari. There's a Pan Am tower too. Yeah, I so like. That. I like how it's like a different world. Yeah, and, um, where certain the whole concept is that c- certain companies that fell under actually became the biggest corporations uh, in the in society. And I mean, the filmmaking of of the of 2049, it lo- it's a lot similar to the original, which is why they they look so good together. Obviously, aesthetically, visually, I think the the new one's so u- unique. But they captured a lot of the same tone and the elements, but also using a lot of miniatures, a lot of these big sets. I think they did a the great job. The production, actually yeah. building them is great. Yeah, these yeah. miniatures of like LAPD in Los Angeles and, and of the Tyrell buildings and everything like that, they look really, really great. And that's just old school filmmaking that still holds up if you do it. And there's so many beautiful behind the scenes footage and videos of these massive miniatures that they built of the city. That's an early viral clip of ours on yeah, TikTok. Yeah, the Blade miniatures. Yeah, that was an old one. Yeah, it's really cool. <laughs> But it still works, man. I mean, Helm's Deep in Lord of the Rings Two Towers still still looks good. Still the best, man. Still <laughs> miniatures, still baby. The, no but one he, still yeah. does them. But even the big sets that they're actually shooting on with the actors, they they built them and they they really look fantastic. Yeah, but obviously a ton of green screen work yeah. and visual effects in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which they couldn't really do much of. They won the, the Oscar for yeah visual yeah. effects. Won the Oscar. Deserved it for sure. Really great, astounding. The cinematography is just breathtaking in this movie. Every shot you could say is the best shot of the movie. It's, it's that good. It's the goat, man. It really is. The goat. Deacons and Villeneuve. I can't wait to see if they'll hopefully work again in the future. I'm sure they will. Maybe they will. They've made three movies together. But, yes, that wraps our episode on Blade Runner 2049. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please share us in this episode your friends and family members that love movies, that love cinema, if they love Blade Runner, send them this episode. I hope they like it. We hope you enjoyed it. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast and leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button as well. Notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. You can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.